0: Moralia Python Radio, with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre.
1: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Moralia Python Radio. Tonight, we are talking about dwarfs and super dwarf retics with Garrett Hartel from Reach Out Reptiles, and we'll be getting into that in, in moments. Um... Not a lot of information about dwarf and super dwarf retics, but uh, that'll all change with this episode tonight. Uh, Garrett has tons of info that he's going to share with us. I even saw him drawing range maps today, Owen. I mean, he's he's ready. He's prepared.
2: He's, he's, he's prepping way too much to talk to the two of us. I mean,
1: <laughs> well, that is like, I told him <laughs> when we yeah. were talking earlier, I said, I said, uh, you know, we do the outline, but don't, you know, follow the outline necessarily. But, you know, something comes up or we want to go off topic or if we have a question that might come up, I said, wait a minute, hold on. No. If I have a question because yeah. is not really a retic guy. So, you know, who knows? Are they
2: large? That's like my only <laughs> question. And in this one, it doesn't work. It, I mean, I got nothing here. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I might so have Garrett, come. God, I can to the show, damn it. No, you do. I'm just saying. like <laughs> you know. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that uh, we were talking about, so I started booking 2018 guests. And you know, yes, you every did. once in a while, we like to do outside-the-box type yes. of shows. And um, I was say, like, you know, Owen's really on this beaded lizard. Yes, I am. He's uh, a I don't know why we're going to do this show. This is a bad idea. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I, uh, I contacted, well, I talked to you and I was like, well, so who, who would we get? And then, uh, I remember Casper telling me a guy, mm-hmm. his name is Steve and jelly. Um, okay. apparently he is a, uh, big time, beaded lizard, uh, guy. And, um, yeah, so we just got to solidify a date, but, uh, in 2018 in January sometime he'll be coming on and, uh, Good. We'll be talking be- beaded lizards. And the and the role will change. I will be like, Okay. Yeah. They have legs. Okay. It's like, no, that's lyric. Yeah. You I lost you. me at it's legs, fine. but uh, I know. you know.
2: It's it's like it's like this it's like the glassed over, you know, eye look I used to get when you and Zach would be, like, Let's look at this I J and like, you know, and then I'd come back when you guys are like jungles and I'd like snap back into it, and be like, oh. <laughs> oh, no. oh, what happened? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Where was that? Yeah.
2: I? yeah.
0: No, it's
1: fine. But uh but yeah, um that's uh that's one of the cool shows that we have in the in the works for uh for twenty eighteen. But um so tonight we're gonna be talking about dwarfs and super dwarf retics. and uh I'm looking forward to this because there's not like I said, there's not a lot of information out there. We got a bunch of questions that we're gonna be hitting mm-hmm. on from, from people that came in. Um so I guess we'll be peppering them throughout the show. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we hit on anything. So I wanted to just make sure if there's people, new listeners, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> we will, uh, we do a chat over on Facebook. Um, it's a Morelia Python radio chat for all those people that are already in the chat. You know, if you've got a question, just throw it out as we go through. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, um We'll see it sorry, and we'll ask my... it. We'll see it and we'll ask it. Somebody was stupid. messaging me, so I lost it, my train of thought. If it's yeah. stupid,
2: then we'll put you on blast for asking a stupid question, but by all means, please keep questions coming.
1: Right. So before we <laughs> Not true. sorry, but before we question. get on there, um, <laughs> paying attention. Uh, yeah. Uh, what uh what what's going on with you?
2: Uh, I went up the white planes. Uh, This weekend, so I was up there, which um, it's always fun to kind of get out of our scene and go check out. And I've been to White Plains a ton, but uh, and it's a long, long, very, very long day. But uh, it's good to get out there because there are a few people that I don't see unless I go to White Plains. Like I got to hang out with Jay McClear for a little bit, talk to him. Uh, And I was very interested. He has these um, Darwins that have a ton of black on them. And their heads are like almost completely like the, 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 like your IJ is like it's black on top of the head. No shit. So yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, if I start a black Darwin project, would Eric make fun of me? And I'm like, you know, yeah, he probably would. So it's like that was going through my head. Um, But there was a ton of other really cool stuff. Um, walking around, um, I picked up a male fuscus to complete my, uh, to get my pair kind of solidified because I was on the fence about my, uh, my male water, about whether or not he was going to be big enough to breed the female that I have. So I kind of upped it up a little bit and kind of secured that. So I'm, I'm happy about that. But, you know, walking around, I got to see a ton of cool stuff. Uh, a lot of things that were very tempting, but it was just mainly New York. It, the New York show itself is just a very big show. And like I said, you see a lot more people that you wouldn't normally see in the Pennsylvania shows. And then on the top of that, Hamburg is Saturday. So it's like snake show and then a couple of days and then another snake show. So it's going to be a pretty busy week uh, down here. So but yeah, yeah, there was that. You know, the rest is getting everybody geared up for uh, breeding, breeding season. Freedom. I did. Yeah. Um, female white lip tried to kill the male so that they're separate now um, so i got i got too cocky and i got start. too happy oh uh, no it wasn't but you know uh i fixed him up and got him separated and then i did a reintroduction a few days later and uh they're back to being okay with each other so uh, i guess they got a whiff of some uh hoppers that i was feeding to some babies so i don't know if that sent her off or whatever but who knows
1: yeah. <clears throat> I haven't uh, started introductions yet. Uh I'm waiting till December first. Um and then and then I'll hit it. So nice. So you got a few more so days? Yeah. Um I wanted to real quick uh yep. I know this might be a little premature, but um we, did. we are currently working on a oh. new Bolin shirt. <sighs> Yeah. And uh <laughs> I just wanted to throw out um Black So a lot of people know Ari um from coming mm. on the show or at Southern Carpet Fest or the work that he's done with uh with uh Bo and I. But um we're trying to help him get to uh <clears throat> the money he's trying to raise for the trip. Uh I think he's going in January. Um and yeah. uh Hopefully the book and, is right behind it, um, but uh, yeah. we're going to be putting together a shirt. You know, with all proceeds going to uh, to help further his research, because I think it's important. You know, uh, not a lot of study yeah. done on uh, and, the snakes and it will over be there in Indonesia.
2: And and it will be different than the shirt that we put out previous for our existing things. We didn't want to just do a rerun of the same shirt. We wanted to have something a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. it's going to have the website all over it. So it, that's, what's great about that. Um, and then the, you know, the idea is just to be able to promote the species, promote Ari's work. And, uh, he told us he's going to go over there and he's going to do some of this, uh, take some tests of some of the areas and some of the water that you yep. know, Keith was talking about the last time, which is awesome. So it's like yeah, it's taking cool. the next <clears throat> couple steps, uh, to kind of understand the species. So I have, uh, we've roughly mocked up the shirt. I'm waiting for the final uh, artist mock-up and approval, and then we're going to run it out. It's going to be the boosters like we've done 10 million times before. You guys should all know how this stuff works by now, but we'll explain later when we get the final draft of the shirt, and then we'll release the design for everybody. So nobody messaged us asking about the shirt. It's not done yet. <laughs> so yeah, we'll let you know. <laughs>
1: there's also i'm going to share it real quick over on facebook but if you're looking to donate with uh without you know a shirt or whatever um he does have a gofundme page over on um i'm going to post it on the uh morelia python radio facebook page um so that uh you can check it out if you choose um but uh yeah so good stuff like i said hopefully the uh <clears throat> the um, know. okay. Hopefully, the uh, book will be coming out right behind.
2: Yeah, we'll I have can't them on do one two, two things
1: at one time, man. I'm
2: freaking. Who's murdering the, the shit <laughs> out of it?
1: <laughs> yeah, they gotta stop. Damn, stop it! Uh, all right, let's focus. Let's focus. We're talking. Uh, we're talking retix tonight, um, and uh, looking forward to it. I want to throw one more little plug out, uh, Garrett did an interview with, uh, well, we, we will know, uh, this one, but Brian Cusco, uh, triple B TV. And apparently Owen, we're next on deck, uh, for the, uh, for the interview. Never Uh, but, uh, uh, he's, uh, he did a YouTube uh, video and, uh, it was, it was really good. Um, really cool stuff. And, uh, I'm sure we'll get into some of that stuff tonight with, uh, with Garrett, but, um, yeah, it's good. It's worth checking out. It's it's kind of a long one. It's uh, maybe 20 mm-hmm. minutes or something like that, which is a little long for uh, sometimes for Brian's videos. But uh, two awesome guys, and uh, I'm glad that uh, they could come on. So let's stop our babbling, and let's get this yep. going, right? So cool. here we go. Garrett, welcome to Morelli Python Radio. Gra-
3: glad to have you. How you doing? Oh,
1: hey, hey am I on? Too.
3: Yes, yes, you yes, are. You're Thanks. On. Yeah, uh, I was telling everybody, they're like, hey, how you doing? I was like, oh, good. You know, I, I just had a baby. They're like, oh, yeah, super dwarfs." I'm like, well, yeah, kind of. Kind of, yes, <laughs> so, sort of.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, congrats yeah. on the, the, the human baby, because I like to yeah. describe So, yeah.
3: Thank you. You'll never thank sleep you. again. So that's, <laughs> no, <laughs> that'll be fun. I, I didn't sleep that much before anyway, so I'm all right. Oh, good. <laughs> this, it's is, overrated. this is my fourth kid. So we didn't even oh, notice okay. that we had one until after he was out. You know. <laughs>
1: so. Is that what happens when they get that high? Oh, oh okay. uh, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. You get, you start getting up there. You're like, how many do I have? They're just climbing on you, anyway. It doesn't. <laughs> the neighbor kids come See, over. And you're like, who are you? I don't think you're. Are one you one of mine? mine? Yes. <laughs> See,
1: on the show, you are what is called a proven breeder.
3: Owen and I, right.
1: however, are
3: unproven uh, breeders.
1: We are not proven oh, breeders. <laughs> yeah.
3: You know what? I uh, oh, and I I heard your story. That was uh, Eugene that said that to you. Right? Yeah, it was Eugene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he said the yeah. same thing when I had my first daughter seven years ago. He's like, "Well, congratulations, you're a proven breeder now." So Are you, if, if <laughs> I, I, think, I ever uh, have a
4: kid,
2: I'm like dragging it to Eugene. Like I'll fly to Florida to be like, "Look." <laughs> so yeah,
3: <I> mean, <laughs> that'll come later. I, I think us reptile guys need to work on having more jokes because we all have the same, like, the three same lame reptile jokes that we just use over and over and over. Yeah. And no, it works as some... long as you're not talking to other reptile people because they've never even thought about it. But then you get in reptile circles. You're like, wait a minute. Eugene said that to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: Yeah. I thought I was yep.
1: special. Apparently.
2: No. <laughs> we got to we gotta get more. Yeah. But
3: it's funny you mentioned uh Steve Angeli. Um I have a a beaded lizard from him that I'm trying to get rid of, so let me know when me. you're ready. No. <laughs>
2: uh no. yeah. oh no, <laughs> no, I'm gonna go shred my wallet just in case and you know, I'll yeah, deal with no, that later. He
3: he is the man when it comes to that stuff. He was breeding beaded lizards when everyone thought they were just ugly helas. Now everyone's like, They're in the coolest thing ever. There so. I,
2: I I had my first interactions with some probably uh a couple of weeks ago when my, my friend got an adult pair and I'm just totally like, I go over to his place now and I'm like, can I see the beat? He's like, I have all these other monitors and I'm like, I don't care about those. Let me see them. So it's, you know, you know I'll, It's I'll cool when
3: you, when you've been thing. doing, cause like, Oh, and how long have you been keeping reptiles?
2: I gotta be like close to 15 years by now at this point. So Here, yeah. Forever
3: in a day. Right. Yeah, I can't so remember. When, <laughs> when you've been doing it over a couple of decades, it's uh it's always awesome when you kind of like rediscover something or mm-hmm. learn that something is so cool all over again.
0: Because mm-hmm.
3: um, I did that. I've, I've got those beaded, but I went out to visit uh, Forrest Banning a little while back. I sold him a big blood python for his crazy collection.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: uh, he has the Alvarez eye, the all black beaded little Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, oh. I've seen pictures and I'm like, okay, cool. He's got Alvarez eye or whatever. And he wanted me to get in on that project with him and stuff. But, uh, th- that, that dude's a baller, man. I don't have that kind of money, <laughs> but, um, I mean, you know, I do when I can see that it's paid back, but he's really working on like establishing new species. That's, that's a real deal stuff, but yeah, yeah, I saw his Alvarez. I had it out and I was playing with it, it took a million pictures and I just got that feeling like where you're melting. You're like, Oh mm. oh, oh my gosh, it's so cool. <laughs> you know? So, just so cool in person. So hey, you guys are carpet python people, right? Yeah, I think, right? Well, yeah, supposedly. every
2: kind of python. Yeah, carpets mostly, but then I, I everything else too. So yeah. So my, yeah, my uh
3: everything. my first yeah. snake, other than like catching things outside and hiding them in the house, was actually a jungle carpet python. And the reason I got that jungle carpet python is because you guys remember being subscribed to Vivarium magazine back in the day. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Come on, you got to remember that. And the best part of the whole thing was like the photo ads in the back.
2: Yeah. LeBron like St.
3: Pierre <laughs> and all those guys. And, and do you guys remember the those old pictures of like the Tiger Coastal carpets?
2: I have that Bavarian oh. magazine because of the Tiger oh, ad in the back. Exactly yep. the ad, yep. right? I saw yep. those
3: things and it just it would just make me pee every time I would turn to that page. It was like it was so <laughs> so exciting for me. So I bought this like dingy, nasty jungle carpet. Uh, you know, and and that got me started with the pythons and stuff. But yeah, it was a, it was a, a tiger coastal. that did it back then. And then they went away forever, and I could never find them. I guess now they're common again.
2: Yeah. So what yeah. what led you to the, to the dwarf retics? I mean, because you're saying you started with catching stuff in your yard and stuff like that, and your jungle. What what progressed towards the uh, the dwarf and the super dwarfs?
3: Um. Well, literally the second snake i bought after the the uh the jungle was a um, pure jampeia mm-hmm. so which is a, a, a one of the dwarf localities of retix. and uh i just i went to a show and i don't know i mean retix, i remember deciding there was a, a dumerols boa that just looked like the sky on fire you know it was a mm-hmm. to this day i haven't seen a prettier one and back then i was i really liked boas and stuff like that And, uh, you know, who can resist a good looking doom, but, um, but no, I, I, um, I, I believe it was prehistoric pets at a show, the old IRBA shows in San Diego, but I might've been wrong. I I can't really remember who I bought it from, but, uh, they had the pure jams and that was like the big thing. Bob Clark had just come out with the first dwarf albino retics. So it was like the light at the end of the tunnel for everyone that liked retics, but didn't want to get eaten by them someday. You know right. what I mean? And, uh, so I got this jamp, and, and, uh, it was, it was from, I think it was from a, a gravid wild caught female that laid eggs and the guys hatched them. Cause barely anyone bred them back then. And, uh, right. the thing was all full of piss and vinegar. And I literally have pictures like, you know, when you're a kid and you get your first snake bite, and you think you're, like, you know, kind of hardcore or whatever because it's, like, bleeding and dripping down your elbow. Yeah, Yeah, and you take a million selfies or whatever. So, yeah, that was me. I was, like, you know, chubby 15-year-old without a shirt taking pictures of my bleeding jam bite, like I'm so cool, you know. (laughs) But, uh, no, I I came by it naturally, but I I just love the freaking snakes. I mean, um, you're saying, oh, and you're saying you're not a retic guy. What does that mean? Or actually, Eric do not a retic guy, but Eric is well, not okay. a retic guy because
2: Eric has, like, what, one, two, and has had numerous. I've never actually owned a retic in my entire reptile career, never even came close yeah. to owning one, just never happened, so... Uh, well, this is probably I the perfect them.
3: episode for you then, because super dwarfs are like, you know, the official retick for people who haven't had reticks. You know,
2: it is a dangerous but, episode because these de- these kinds <laughs> of episodes make me want to buy shit that I don't have after we're
3: done talking yeah. to somebody who has them all. So yeah, I you, can understand. Yeah, you got to watch out. Yeah, you got to watch uh, out. So, but for so for people who haven't had them before, but you've had pythons. I mean. You know, you're you're blissfully unaware that retics exist and how amazing they are. And you're keeping all your pythons, thinking they're cool and all this kind of stuff. And then one day, right. you know, you, like, rescue a retic that's six feet and got too big for the owner or whatever. And uh, you're all pissed off at them because it's got dry shed and mites and it's all tore up and everything. And it's just looking at you like a big baby. You nurse it back to health. It gets under your skin. And then it's just, like, the coolest, smartest, sweetest retic where it, like, loves you and hates other people. I remember my retic cuddling up with me and they would like chase my sister off when she'd come in to bug me and stuff. And I was like, ah, 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 so cool. <laughs> but um, it was like my air conditioned pillow in the summertime in Southern California, living out in the desert, you know, with uh parents that didn't like to waste money on air conditioning, 120 degree days. Um, I don't know. They're, they're just, they're on another <laughs> level. Eric, you got a bunch of stuff. I mean, they're, they're just, they're, uh, they connect with you, right? Yeah. Yep. I mean, people say people say they're so much more intelligent and all that other kind of stuff. I don't know how you really measure that stuff, but I, I will say that you can connect with a retic. They, like, they read you. They learn you, you know? They're, they're like Jurassic Park, you know what I mean, with the guy who's all into the rapture, the original Jurassic Park. And he's like, she's watching, you know, or whatever. And yeah. That kind of stuff. Like, they just sit there and plan things out, you know? I don't know. It's, it's very hard to put your finger on it, but someone that's had them, you know, it, you kind of just – it's like I ride motorcycles, you know, you, you drive down the road, someone else on a motorcycle, you put your hand out as you pass. I'm like, Hey, what's up, man? Like, I know. Yeah. You know, too. You know, like, Oh, you got a retic Yeah, Nod to you. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. what's up? Yeah, me too. You know what I mean? It's just, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know. I've kept a lot of different species, but, uh, for pythons, I mean, retics are just it. I I can't get away from them. I try to get other stuff. And then I'm like, wait a minute, you're not a retic. Get out of here.
2: You're within valuable retic space. Yeah, I got you. That's it. Yeah. It's,
3: I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. So, so
2: what are you currently working with? Is it just reticks or is it, uh, and I mean, is it all the different, or is it just the super dwarf and the dwarf reticks?
3: Well, um, I would say that all my projects are kind of in a state of evolution right now. <laughs> um, I uh, I just ordered custom cages in it was like February March and I'm still waiting for the last ones to be delivered, and okay. so I'm waiting for one more gargantuan cage that I can like climb around in on my hands and knees and walk all around inside, and uh, and then after it, from then until now you know I I uh, went full time with Reach Out Reptiles I've had it for years but I went full time with it in July, and, okay. um, and and during that time I I basically pushed. All of the mainland stuff out, and uh, you know, doubled, tripled, and quadrupled up on the super dwarf stuff. Um, and uh, you know, I've always had them, like you know, going all the way back to that original jampea. I've had them for a long time, but yeah, right now it's it's super dwarfs, and, and just within the super dwarf retics, there's so many different projects you can do. And I'm not really talking about like morphs only, but there's localities. You can actually select a Britley breed for size. You know, I know that sounds weird or whatever, but there's, mm-hmm. there's all, all kinds of different things that, that you can do with them. And, um, and then, you know, with the, with the advent of the ban on importation, um, the whole U.S. ARC thing, and we won, and, yeah, we could ship them from state lines or whatever, but, but we no longer have access. We're, we're capped off. We're like an island unto ourselves here uh, right. when it comes to new bloodlines. So I really tried to gather up some of the more precious or rare stuff that I know is going to die. Things that I've appreciated in the past, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like uh, Eric, you were talking about Indian pythons a second ago. They used to be all over the place and people like screw around and make, you know, crosses with berms and all that stuff. And and then now you're saying like, I thought they were just gone and I saw a pair for sale recently. Um, You know, if we don't work with that stuff, it's It's gone forever. So I, I fondly remember my jam. Um, it's to this day one of my favorite localities. It has nothing to do with size or anything. I just love that locality. Um, but uh, there are very few pure Jamps being bred as locality projects right now. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've gone through a bunch of that stuff. So I'm trying to get more of the locality stuff in. I'm always trying to push the envelope on uh, new morphs in smaller sizes, and it, you know, this is like, I call Superdors my bonsai project. You're not going to just do the, like, the buy a cool male and rent it to your females and be done thing with these. You know what I mean? They they take a long time. It's a lot of patience. They're a lot more like green tree pythons or something, like, you know, to put it in your guys' terms. It's just a whole different game. You know right. what I mean? So. Yeah. So. So. Anyway. Yeah. To answer your question, I, I've got a bunch of different superdwarf stuff for morphs, locality, things like that. Uh, besides that, I have uh, one beaded lizard and a few <laughs> barnack scrub pythons.
2: Oh, Barneck. So, nice. I,
3: I'm looking around. What else? What else do I have? I have a California king snake over there, and that's about it. So that's awesome! Yeah. Now, now that's here at, at my facility. So, what I do when I get rid of stuff, I never get rid of stuff. I, like, give it to people, but I still own it, and then they breed it for me and send me babies. And so, I, you know, so my collection is, like, probably ten times larger than what I actually have here. You know, but it's like, this is a giant, mean retic. Uh, so, I'm going to send this one to Brian Cusco, and uh, <laughs> he can breed that for me. And right. send me all the babies back to sell. So, I did that last weekend. that was the last of my mainland besides my locality sulawesi stuff
1: oh you have that nice really see yeah (laughs) i
3: have those too
1: i'm a fan of uh i think you you brought up a good point that you know um you have this locality stuff and yeah i guess it's not as flashy as the morphs and all that kind of stuff to me it, it is because that's my thing but i understand why people like the uh the different colors and stuff. But my fear is, is that nobody cares and then it disappears. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and then once you, yeah. And, but once you sort of, you know, once you breed it into something else, that's no longer a locality type animal. It's kind of gone, you know? (laughs) No. And, and you know what, that's
3: one of the big misconceptions. A lot of people say, okay, they, they want, they come to me and they say, I want a pure Kalatoa female because I heard that's the best. Give me one of those. Mm-hmm. I tell them the price right. and they're like, Ugh. you know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. like, uh, how much for like a 50% super dwarf?" And it's, you know, significantly lower. They're like, well, I'll, right. I'll just get a pair of those and make my own someday. And I was like, no, that's mm-hmm. not how this works. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You cannot make your own. You know what no. I'm saying? If, if you breed it yeah. enough times, that's that. you know, when it's gone, it's gone, you know. Yeah. So I, I don't know a lot of people don't understand how that whole whole situation even even works. So there there are a lot of misconceptions about the stuff in the general public. So but
2: anyway. anyway. So what uh, can you tell us about like reach out reptiles and uh you know where the name came from?
3: Where the name came from? Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. Are you guys into like intrinsic value stuff? Like do, do you like getting deep with these kinds of things? Go for go it. Deep. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just telling you, I'm gonna go deep, but a lot of people are surprised how deep I can go. Um, Being a super dwarf guy, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, I actually, um, well, here, uh, I have. So I, I had to do a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like a business proposition. Uh, mm-hmm. a, what's the? I'm blanking on the name because I'm for the radio. What do you? What do you write up when you pitch your business to investors? Business plans. Yeah, business plan. And, right? and they wanted to know why why reach out. Same question, right? So I answered it. I got I get, you get we have enough time. We have two hours. This is like uh-huh. four paragraphs. All right. So uh, I'm just gonna read this to you. Uh, you guys get a, a behind the scenes look as to you know how this whole thing started. Um, nice. So reach out. You know, it's a it's a phrasal verb. It means a bridge a gap in communication with a person or a group usually in order to help or involve them. I got a couple of quotes here. You guys know Blake Mykoski, founder of Tom's Shoes and One for One? If you don't, you should look him up. His quote is, giving doesn't just feel good, but it's really, really good for business, and it's good for your personal brand. And then Guy Kawasaki, he was like the chief evangelist for Apple at a long time, a big author and everything. He says, there's two kinds of people and organizations in this world, eaters and bakers. Eaters want a bigger slice of an existing pie. Bakers want to make a bigger pie. Eaters think that if they win, you lose. If you win, they lose. Bakers think that everyone can win with a bigger pie. So I I just wrapped it up. I said a person reaches out when they're in need or they reach out to someone who is in need. A business whose goal is sales is going to face ruthless competition, resistance, opposition. But a business whose goal is giving finds the charity of man, enthusiastic volunteers, and assistance in hardship from unexpected sources. For this reason, it's better to give than to receive. But whether you give or are given to, you strengthen faith and dwell in the original purpose of mankind, which is relationship. There's a few places, there are few places today more corrupted by the darkness of greed than the world of sales and marketing. And this is where I come from guys. So to be Mm -hmm. uh, a light, and an example of the benefits of intrinsic giving in this dark place is more of a mission statement than a business proposition. If your giving is authentic and transparent, flocks of people who desire to help become the driving force behind your growth, and they steal the spotlight away from the profits and financial gains. The idea is to form a sustainable for-profit business whose growing financial resources can be used as a blessing to people in need. It's like a form of privately run capitalistic communism by which a company based on principles of generosity provides a channel for the voluntary, beneficial, enthusiastic redistribution of wealth from the top down. Uh, The allure of attaining that balance in life can bring about revolution through the offering of this change of perception. Corporate responsibility is the, the burden of greater, corporate responsibility and the burden of the greater good is in the hands of every person and business. Whether it's sales, manufacturing, consulting, financing, if there's a need for a good or service, there's a place to do the right thing. To reach out to the souls of both the consumer and consumed, and remind them which is which. So, and then they just all started throwing money at me and and reach out point rep- <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice. All right, that works. Right So, yeah, if you look at my logo, it's a a bridge, and it's actually Sixth Street Bridge in in Pittsburgh. I have um, copies of the original blueprints from um, some engineer, a big engineering firm that I worked with. And um, I got the city of Pittsburgh there on one side, and then I've got, like, this natural hill on the other side. And my goal for Reach Out is to be, like, the bridge between, you know, kind of the, the artificial And the natural, I think, I think the big problem today is that everyone's disconnected from the natural world around them. They just, you know, you don't understand the consequences of your actions. You just go through, you do things the way you were told. You don't think for yourself, you know what I mean? We're all guilty of that. So this is kind of like, Hey guys, let's rethink what's actually important, reinvent what's actually cool. And, you know, see if, uh, see if we can get people on our side while we do it, you know, cool. So well set. so so, so <laughs> I do like a bunch of charity stuff with it and everything. You guys know as well as I anybody in the reptile industry knows right now when somebody in our industry like a fellow herper, I don't care if I never knew them before, they come a, a, upon some kind of personal tragedy, this industry like jumps together to support that person. Am I mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah, right? Like, <clears throat> I mean it, it's feel, it's feel good to the umpteenth level. It's amazing. It's incredible especially when you consider all the jerks that it is that are, are doing all these good things. Right. Cause I know everybody in the industry, come on, we're all a bunch of jerks. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Right. But nobody's perfect. We all have good and bad qualities. But, uh, what I love is to find the good in every person and help them to become the best possible version of themselves. And, uh, super for me connect people with, to, in my mind, a reticulated python is just the king of all pythons. You know what I mean? But it's very understandable that not everyone can have one. Not everyone should have one.
0: Right, you know what I mean? Right. So work,
3: working with super from all these different angles, for me, is is connecting people with it, – it's like checking off an item of their bucket list. You know what I mean? And th- there's just no better feeling than that. It's awesome. I love it. I love it. It would be you selling me that super tiger coastal. You know what hmm. I mean? <laughs> Yeah. So, or the day I got the pet the lucifer Nile monitor on the cover, you know what I mean? It just it would rip off my face, and I would just be crying because I was so happy, you know. <laughs> you know, like reptile right. people do.
1: Right. Cool. So, anyway, long answer, but <clears> there right. you go. Awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, let's <laughs> let's get into let's get into some uh, dwarf and super dwarf retic uh, one hundred and one, if you will. So. It, 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 what what qualifies a retic to be a dwarf or a super dwarf? Uh,
3: that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, a lot of times people think, especially with the term dwarf and super dwarf sounding something like, okay, tiger and super tiger, you know, uh-huh. uh, they, they think it's a genetic mutation uh, and it is not. So these are actually a, an insular, Form. they're they're from small islands and they've adapted to a specific niche in the wild um, So that's what qualifies them um, there's there's a, a group of islands that are just south of nobody knows their geography when it comes to Indonesia but basically everyone's heard of Komodo Island Most people have heard of Sulawesi, especially retail people right? Uh-huh. Uh, basically, in between Komodo Island and Sulawesi, you have the Flores Sea, which is dotted with a bunch of islands full of retics that got, like rafted to these places and live in really sucky environments. And that creates the dwarfs and the super dwarfs. So they, they have to be from you know, originated from those islands. Most of them are named after, you know, like dwarf. There's a few localities that make up dwarf. There's a few localities that make up super dwarf. There's one that's kind of like controversial in between. Is it a dwarf? Is it a super dwarf? You know what I mean? Cause, because in all honesty, those terms, dwarf and super dwarf, they're just marketing terms. We just make that stuff up. You know what I mean? Um, sure. So so what is the real definition? It kind of varies depending on who you ask. But, but okay. they have to come from those islands.
1: Okay. Um, so I guess... The the next question would be let's see hold on um, what's uh, you know what would be the difference between the two as far as like you know is is it size I, I'm assuming it's size is it, what would make a dwarf or a super dwarf <clears throat> this is
3: this is a good question if you actually look at where they come from it becomes a lot more clear. So you mentioned, Eric, that you saw me putting together range maps and all this kind of stuff today. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at a map of the area where these guys come from, you can actually see the evolution of the dwarf and the super dwarf, you know, if you just look at it. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people that are jumping on my Facebook page, Garrett, Garrett Hartle or whatever, jump on there. Go look at this, that picture or just pull up on Google Maps. Look up, say, Jampea Island. It's like right in the middle. Uh, mm-hmm. basically all these dwarfs and super dwarfs, the reason why they have like cool patterns and they fire up and down and the way they are, you know, they, the reason why they are the way they are is because they, they actually come from Sulawesi, which a lot of people consider to be like, you know, the it locality for retics, big, gorgeous, you know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. incredible animals from Sulawesi. And so you have this island chain that it's kind of like the Florida keys only to a way bigger scale, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But you have like, so say you have an animal living in Florida and then you find it down, going down the keys and every island, it's going to be a little bit different or you have like the Galapagos islands with the finches are slightly different on every island. That's Mm -hmm. the way these retics are. Now, uh, as far as what actually qualifies them, there's been studies and people have proposed that they need to be elevated to different subspecies. Um, they are that different from mainland retics. They're even hard to cross in the first generation. So it's kind of like trying to create hybrids. You know, you try to hybridize two species. Sometimes they don't like to do it the first time around. And then once you get the crosses, they'll breed to anything, right? But, right. like, it's hard to really make a, a – to breed your carpet to a GTP. But then when right. you get those Carpondros, they'll breed to whatever, you know. Sure. So, um, so if you look at this island chain, I'll I'll walk you through it, but, you know, anyone that really wants to know should sit down at a map and listen to this segment. But you have the, the southern tip of Sulawesi, where the Bugis people come from, or the city of Makassar. Um, the Boogies people, by the way, that's where they you get the old uh, the legend of the Boogeyman. It's kind of cool. A bunch of headhunting tribes and uh, I mean, super primitive place. A uh, lot of inaccessible areas. And Sulawesi has some of the most insane uh, animal life of anywhere. You know, because uh, they have the Australian and the Asian stuff all blending right there. So, um, so anyway, right right off the tip, you have Selear Island. And mm-hmm. most of these islands are like really long ridges. They're volcanic. So on one side of them, it's just nothing but uh, like coral reefs popped up or volcanic limestone. Uh, you know, the, uh, what do you call it, sandstone mixed with the limestone. You know, kind of like Madagascar is or whatever.
0: Yeah. And oh, yeah one side yeah, of the yeah.
3: island will just be horrible. And then the other side of the island is like lush and awesome. You know how the Cinzinia and Madagascar are? You have the greens, uh, the mandarins and the greens. They come mm-hmm. from the different side of the islands. The green side is like lush and amazing, and the Mandarin side is like burnt wood everywhere, just crap and driftwood. That's why they look like that.
0: Yeah, so they can blend.
3: Yeah, right. So a lot of these islands are are the same. So Slayer Island is is actually pretty big. It's it's not quite a hundred miles long. Um, there's an airport there, you know. So that's a locality, but it's the gap between it and mainland Sulawesi. And for the people who know Sulawesi, I mean, those those retics are reputed to be, like, the biggest locality,
0: mm-hmm.
3: Sulawesi. As
0: soon as you right. get to these
3: islands, right, right, almost connected to Sulawesi, they're, like, the smallest retics. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah. <clears> but, yeah. But if you look at it, there's a chain. It goes Slayer Island and Jampaya Island. Now, there's actually, like, oh, 100 islands here, but these are the main ones. Slayer and Jampaya. Slayer is almost connected to Sulawesi. And if you look at a Slayer, we call it Slayer. It's actually Selear. But, um, you look at the Slayer dwarfs, they look like mini Sulas. You know, they're, they're very vibrant in color. The pattern is that kind of crazy chainsaw pattern that they have going on. A lot of right. people love them, uh, especially for crossing into stuff. Cause it, it bumps up, you know, the looks on all your morphs. So, um, but they're everywhere. And, um, and you'll see a trend. They're actually like the larger locality of the dwarfs, you know, one of the larger ones. Um, Okay. The next island you have down is Kaowati. And Kaowati is a little bit of an anomaly um, because it's very flat. It's very small. The whole thing is a national park. So you can't take Hmm. anything off of there anywhere. So it's one of the rarest localities to actually see. Um, but it was also some of the original stuff that came in and was labeled as super dwarfs. Um, but selective breeding with that locality has come up with some some interesting, you know, setbacks and things like that. We can get into a little bit later. But, but yeah, you have 15-mile gap between um, Sulawesi and Slayer. Then you have 45-mile gap. You have Kaowati. Then you have about a 20-mile gap, and you get to Jampea. Okay? Those are the mm-hmm. three main... I would say they're dwarf. Some people say Kowadi is a super dwarf. Um, it is a small crappy island to live on, so you know, they they get a little more kind of stunted and stuff than the jamps and the slayers do. Um okay. you have that sort of island chain and then you have a hundred miles. You know, and then out far away the next there's three tiny little islands. I mean they're like you have Karampa, Kalatoa, and Madu. They're all very close to each other. Karampa is, uh, it's actually called Karampa Lompa, which is pretty fun to say, but it's <laughs> yeah. like two miles across. Okay. It's literally two mile across Island, just a reef that had some like mangroves growing on it, you okay. know, wow. then there's Kalatoa, which is the biggest of these three. And it's like eight by five miles kind of circular. And then you have Madu or they also call that one honey Island. Um, which I hate that name because there's lots of other honey, honey islands. So that's kind of annoying. But, um, but that one is, it's only one mile across, but then it's 10 miles long. And okay. so those three, those three are all really close to each other, like, you know, five to 10 miles apart. Um, but they're extremely far away from everything else. So they're almost like a little mini Hawaiian island out there. And that's where all the smallest retics in the world come from. So if you look at at it down the chain, it's almost perfect. Like biggest to smallest, the further away from mainland you go, the smaller they get. Gotcha. So, Hmm. yeah, kind of the way that it goes.
1: Now, is the thinking of why they're so small just similar to what we see with insular boas? uh, The food uh, availability, et cetera? Or is there some other thoughts on why they're so small?
3: No, I, I think that's I think that's exactly it. Um the Slayers and the Jampeas uh get get fairly big. They're they're a little bit smaller, but like Slayer Island, for example, they have civet cats, squirrels, there's couscous there. Pretty big mammalian prey. You know, mm-hmm. Jampeya is gonna be similar. Uh as is Kiowadi, even though Kiowadi doesn't have it's a smaller island, doesn't have as much um to offer. But it, it's a cool place because of its, its topography, you know, uh, which is why it's a national park. It's just this gorgeous place, but there's nothing really on it. These other ones that are out in the middle of nowhere, I mean, they're uh-huh. like I said, they're like reefs that stuck up out of the ocean. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you were to look at a seafloor map, you can actually see that uh, this part of the water, like when I lived in Indonesia, they wouldn't let you uh-huh. travel in the wintertime or, well, our wintertime on these islands because the boats just get swallowed up. The, the riptides are extreme. Um, they're, they're, you know, up to, I think it's like a fathoms deep or something. So they're fairly deep, but you just get this warm water, cold water thing going on.
4: Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh,
3: and those three little islands, the Karampa, Kalatoa and Madu, they are actually way at the end and the reef kind of curves right there. And forces all that water to go down from spills from the Flores Sea down into, oh, and you'll like this, the Savu Sea, where Timors live. You know I what do I mean? Like the Savu pythons and all that. So the <laughs> right. retics, It's it, well, it's really kind of cool. Like, that's the last stop. If you're a retic that got washed out, what happens is, you know, they hunt and live along the rivers up in Sulawesi. And then you get these like monsoon floods during that same time of year that just wash all this wildlife out the sea. And then they get, you know, if they're lucky, they land somewhere, you know. But these super dwarf islands, there's no fresh water. Now, I've never been there, but a lot of what I've heard is like before people inhabited those islands, there weren't even rodents or anything to eat. So, you know, uh, a lot of these islands, it's like seasonal food items, like nesting birds once a year, you have something to eat. My super dwarf stuff, they'll eat fish and crabs. (laughs) You know what I mean? Really? whatever. Yeah, they're just like the little python you can't kill, and they came from, you know, reticulated python bloodlines, you know, however many eons ago, but now Mm -hmm. they're trying to be... These islands on a map, you're getting real close to carpet python, scrub python, savu, timor, those kinds of creatures. You know what I mean? There's there's no retics down there anymore. This is just about the southernmost point of where their range goes. They go a little bit further east, but it's more northernly. So uh, this is, like, way out there for retics. And this is just a bunch of, like, bastardy little retics that refuse to die. It reminds me of, <laughs> of Pittsburgh. You know what I mean? It's just like, geez, Pittsburgh, why aren't you dead yet? You know what I mean? We, we refuse. We re- refuse to die. We're like the Steelers. We always have to win in the last 15 seconds. That's the oh, way man, we do Yeah, it.
2: that's not <laughs> disgusting at all Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: This doesn't take years um, off my life.
3: <laughs> uh, so that's where they come from but they're, it's basically a bunch of retics that are evolving into like carpet pythons you know what i mean God. but it's kind of the way that i look at it they're they're living down where those things do they have zero resources and uh so yeah the the scrappy little ones are the ones that survive wow gotcha okay
1: um, so what would you say that, that all being said, what would you say is the biggest misconception of what people have when it comes to dwarf and super
3: dwarf retics? Um, the biggest, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions. <laughs> and I, I take it to be my own, I take it to be my own personal fault cause I haven't written anything on it or anything, but there, there's not really any literature out there. You can find some stuff on like like a thread on a forum where someone, you know, uh, had a stick up their butt and decided to sit down and write three paragraphs about them, but right. uh, or a care sheet somewhere or whatever. But um, it, even in super dwarf breeding circles, everybody argues about stuff. Which locality is the smallest and this and that and like nobody can agree on anything. And there's not really any actual data on the stuff. You know, and right. it's just like anything from Indonesia. It's like you're talking about like locality green tree pythons. They're named after the airports they fly out of. You know right. what I mean? No sure. one knows where the, that stuff actually comes from. So, right. uh, there's a, with the exception of a few, but I mean, there's, there's just a lot to be learned. And what we see in captivity is not what we see in the wild, blah, blah, blah. But I would venture to say the, the biggest misconceptions when it comes to Superdorf is not necessarily the locality stuff, but it's actually the crossing and how that works. I mean, we cross them into mainland stuff so we can get the morphs of the mainland retics into the superdwarf stuff. Right. And uh and there are so many people that that pawn stuff off as superdwarf so they breed them ridiculously or irresponsibly or I I might even sell someone something that says, "Well, yeah, it's got 25% superdwarf in it." And they're like, "Gareth Hartle said this is a pure superdwarf." You know what I mean? And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it gets sold three generations later, you know, at half price every time until someone's out there offering a $50 pure super dwarf, whatever from Garrett Hartle. And, and it's funny because people look me up and I'm like, dude, mine are like 1500 bucks. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, but the misconception is kind of like, how big do they really get? Are they actually predictable? You know, um, and then you know, and and a lot of the misconceptions are misconceptions because there was, there is, or was some truth in some way at some time, you know what I mean? But but people don't sure. understand how it works, and so they try to apply their logic from working with other things to that, and it doesn't come out. Just like the idea yeah. that you can buy two fifty percent superdorps and some day work your way up to a hundred percent. You know, that's total. No. Yeah, that's right. like saying I'm half Cherokee and my wife's half Cherokee and we can have, like, white and Cherokee babies. No, they're all going to be mud.
0: You know what, yeah. what I mean?
3: So <laughs> yeah, like it's a mix of both. we say out here. Yeah, yeah. Right. and it's never going to be pure ever again. You right. know what right. I mean? So, yeah, yeah, that's
1: what I was kind of talking about at the beginning of the show, you know, when we were talking about localities and stuff. Once it's gone, and once you've crossed it's it, it's done. That's it. Yeah. It's gone. So that line or bloodline or whatever you want to say is is gone forever. So yep. I'm glad there are people yep. out there. So one, let me ask you this. Let me phrase this a different way. So one of the things that I've heard about dwarfs and super dwarfs is that they're flighty and they rub their heads and they you know are are more aggressive. So maybe you can hit on a little bit about that. Maybe talk about how to handle them. Do they handle different? Then, you know, regular retics or a python and maybe the do's and don'ts of how you, you know,
3: kind of get them settled in. Um, Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, Well, I think that that reputation is deserved in the beginning. Uh, I kind of laugh because a lot of even retic breeders are very inexperienced when it comes to super dwarfs. And so they'll have retics that they're like, oh, she's a sweetheart, big Bertha over here. You know what I mean? She wouldn't hurt a fly. Most trustworthy snake I've ever had. You know right. what I mean? And then they say, oh, but superdwarfs, they're flighty, they're bitey, they poop all over you, you know what I mean, and, and, and try to kill you. Um, but obviously those people haven't been in it very long because back when I got that, that little jampaya and nobody was really captive breeding retics, every retic was flighty and bitey and craps all over you. You know what <laughs> I mean? I, I right. remember reading an article back in the same Vivarium magazine, I think Bob Clark wrote it, and he was talking about the tiger morph. And it was funny, retics in general had this reputation that they're they're fast and strong and aggressive and crap all over you and musk all the time. And he said, there's something about the tiger morph that makes them more docile. And people would buy these tigers that he was breeding, and sure enough, yeah, they are more docile. You know what I mean? And super tigers, well, those are super docile. And so they, they attributed it to the morph, which I always thought was humorous, because basically what was happening back then was, why, if you want a retick, you're buying a $25 wild retick that hates you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It just hates humans. If, if nobody was captive breeding them, because for $25, bucks, what are you going to captive breed something for? What's the point in it? You know what I mean? Other than just pure passion of wanting to reproduce an animal in captivity. But when you came to the tigers, you can't get a wild-caught tiger every day. So you have to go with captive bred. Super tiger means you, you're at least two generations in super breeding, you know, captive breeding to get a super tiger. And so right. what was really happening was it doesn't have anything to do with a tiger morph It had to do with the fact that you're offering captive bred offspring. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? That's kind of um, what I thought. And but... <laughs> it's exactly the same with the super dwarfs. I mean, people either j- just haven't bred them very much or if they had, they got a bunch of like the original, a lot of people are still working with original imported animals a lot of people are, and they're breeding these all these F1 babies. Well, right. it, it takes a couple generations. I mean, just naturally, we're talking now about the domestication of a species. You know what I mean? If you have an animal, let's say a female that you you, you produce twenty babies, and one of them is just extra sweet and lovely, right? Mm-hmm. So you're gonna, she's gonna become your garbage disposal animal, right? You give all her extra food and love and time and. You know what I mean? And then she breeds faster and gets bigger and has larger clutches. And and the other ones are kind of breeding too, but they take a few years longer. They have a few less eggs. Well, when you start to multiply that down the generations, eventually those good, tame, nice genetics just get passed on automatically. Because those are the animals that are best suited to captivity. And it's, it's exactly the same with some of my super dwarf stuff. I'm in like four generations now. And, uh, see, you know, they're, they're retics. They're just retics. Right. And, and in most people's eyes now retics means nice, big, calm, you know? So if you're right. an old timer, awesome. you might still think that they're crazy.
2: That they're yeah, like, yeah, right.
1: <laughs> I go through the same thing with, uh, you know, like when I'm talking to scrub people, I guess this is just my, my experience. Cause when, when I was young, my dad had a retic and it was like vicious, you know, and right. it's just because they pulled it right out of the wild, you know, and uh, same yeah. thing. So with the scrubs, you see the same type of deal. And I think once they're bred more readily in captivity, you're going to see them settle down. It's just like you see it with ballpipe, everything, you know, you know, I mean, absolutely I everything. Yeah,
3: absolutely
1: yeah. everything. Well, even right. then, like,
3: <laughs> let's say you do get your scrubs to breed sometimes the babies Mm -hmm. are still kind of nippy or crazy. I mean, you guys are working with carpet pythons that are still regularly imported, eryongias and and stuff like that. You know, they're nippy, they're bitey, they're this, they're that. How come all the four gene animals are super sweet? You know what I mean? Massively, you know, selectively bred in captivity to get to that Mm -hmm. point. So, yeah, it's the same thing. Sometimes the first generation, it's like you barely got that evil animal to to breed, you know, and, uh, you know, and and so it's passing all of its evil genetics on to the babies. And evil is not the right word for that, but, you know, I'm just being goofy.
0: But
1: it takes a
3: little while. It right. takes a little while to get going. So yeah.
1: let me ask you this question, just branching off of that. So let's say that you do get uh, – you are working with some uh, – say you're working with localities or something like that that's not as many generations in. So you are going to deal with some of these problems as far as, you know, them being flighty or, you know, is there any recommendations you can do to keep them from, say, rubbing their head or, you know, hmm. stuff like that? Is there stuff you can do to sort of get them out of that mode?
3: Well, um so there's a 50-50. There's like a, a nature and a nurture side to that. Um, mm-hmm. Part of it is going to actually have to do with the way that you keep them. And I know you guys wanted to go over that stuff as well.
1: So yeah, when you get that, to that, there
3: are back. things that you do that you, you, you would keep a Superdorf differently than a mainland or, for God's sakes, like a ball python. You know, The problem is people <laughs> that get into Superdorfs, they, they either have like a, the ball python type background or the reticulated mm-hmm. python type background, and superdwarfs are neither. You can't apply the philosophy from either of those two, you know, uh, commercially bred species to this new type of animal and expect right. it to be successful. You know what I mean? It's, it, you'll have some success, but that's because right. they're an animal that's designed not to die no matter what, mm-hmm. you know. But if you if you really want to keep them the way they're supposed to be, there are a little bit differences. So we'll hit on that but I, I would okay. like to answer you just by talking about handling specifically. Um, okay. Yeah. There there are some some very general rules. The first thing that makes people afraid of their superdors if they get them, is their outrageous feeding response. Have you ever had like a blackhead python? Or you guys are like olive python yeah. guys, right? You got yeah, olive? I've, I've had both. I had yep. an olive python chewing on my calf for like three hours one time. I just <laughs> left him there. Uh, my thing is like, I'm not going to rip them off. I never freak out when a when a snake bites me, I grew up with horses. So, you know, a snake bite is like, ha, what is that? You know what I mean? Right. Horse bites, <laughs> those are what hurt. Uh, right. So yeah, I get, I get this, uh, Papuan olive Python flies out of its cage and, uh, grabs me by the, you know, trying to eat, you know, I'm feeding it a rat. It's not his fault. Grabs me by the mm-hmm. calf and wraps me up and then just sitting there writhing like an octopus with all of its might for like three hours. <clears throat> think it's going to take down a tree kangaroo and, and win the jackpot or something, you know what I mean? And right. I'm just like, are you done yet? I mean, you freaking stupid snake. Haven't you figured out that I taste like human, you know what I mean? And, and blue jeans right. and, and you know, clothing. soap. come on. Right. So, you know, super are not that bad, but when you open that tub, if you feed them in their tub like that and everything, they, they know the routine. You open the tub, mm-hmm. and put something warm in, it's warm blooded prey. You bite it, you wrap it. So they are poised at the back of their cage, like spring loaded, like they haven't eaten in a year because in the wild they mm-hmm. wouldn't have. And they just come mm-hmm. flying out with those heat pits and just, I mean, sometimes they'll literally, I'll pull the tub out and they, like the babies, the eager, stupid ones, you know, they launch themselves and plop on the floor. And I just Mm -hmm. feed them down there on the floor and pick them up and put them back in the tub as a, you know, constricting the thing. And I think it's funny, but a lot of people that are not used, I mean, we're talking about babies that are the size of a pencil. You know what I mean? So it's not really a threat to anybody. But a lot of people find that intimidating because they're not used to snakes striking at them. Um, So their first thing that they do is they begin to act defensively around the animal. And then the animal's like, whoa, you know, after it's out of that food mode and it's looking at you, it's like, why are you acting so defensive? If they're trying to grab it, they're trying to, like, either grab it by the neck or use a tool to pick it up and manipulate it. Um, and and are they're athletic, you know. So they're, they're not going to hang on a hook. They don't mind flailing off onto the floor, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so those techniques just don't work. So my technique, first of all, I have, like, we already went over this. I have a million human children. And my right. oldest is six, and I have four of them now. So you can see what mm-hmm. I've been up to for the last few years. Uh, right. I, I bring them into the snake room with me, and um, my one daughter, she has a, a, her own little labeler, and she, she puts these stickers on the tubs for any snake that bites her, even if it's a feed response or accident. She, this is her philosophy. I just let her run with it. So she writes bite mm-hmm. on a sticker and puts it on the cage, and then every time she comes down, she wants to hold the one that bites until it doesn't. Yeah. I there, there's actually a little video her name's Riley. That's my second. There's a video of her okay. on my YouTube explaining this process. She's like, "Yeah, you okay. know, I think that people who buy daddy snake don't want to get bit by them, but like I'm tough. I don't even care. So I'll <laughs> let it bite me now so it doesn't bite you later, you know, if you're like four <laughs> years awesome. old or whatever." That's awesome. So that's that's what I do. When I when I handle snakes, I I'm actually like kind of rough with them. Like you know, there's going to be a day where you need to grab that snake's head and like pull some bedding out of its mouth. You know what I mean? Or, right. or uh-huh. just, you know, grab it and manipulate it. You're going to sex it or probe it or, or whatever, you know, someday you're going to help it shed. So, so I grab a snake. If it, this is me, okay? I, I don't get phased by snake bites. So I grab a snake and like, I don't care if it bites me, if it does or it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I grab it, I open its mouth, I stick finger down its throat, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm popping them all the time, double-checking sexes and stuff. I don't know why I'm, like, OCD about that. But hmm. um, I just I just manipulate them. Like, you ever grab, you ever have, like, a, a dog that's got big jowls, and you just grab it and, like, shake its head? And you're like, you're so freaking cute! You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, what, yeah. that's what I do with my retics. And so if they can handle me doing that stuff, they can handle anything. And, and they, they calm right down. The funny thing is, if you act like you're gonna get bit, you probably are. If you act like yeah. you don't care if you get bit, they don't even try. They know it. They're smart enough. They're like, this guy's nuts. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, right. You open the. T- I open the tubs on my superdors, and they're like, I give up already. I'm like, what? Right. It's throwing up your water bowl, dude. You know. So. So as far as oh. handling goes, just don't be gentle. I mean these these snakes are made to be like, you know sun beaten and battered against coral reefs their whole life. You know what I mean? They they can take a sure. little bit of like, you know, grab it and handle it. You just, I just do whatever I'm going to do. You know what I mean? Sometimes I'll just like stuff one in my pocket while I'm in cage and pull it out and put it back and everyone's like, oh, poor baby, you know, and I'm I'm always like, i handle my snake so gently, you're going to make it mean. You right. know what I mean?
0: Right. So, <laughs> as, far,
3: as far as handling goes That's what I do and it, it, it works on F1s and everything else They learn it right away Especially if you start okay. from birth Like, you know, flighty is a different thing uh, I, think, I, I think that's kind of a bad name for it I mean, to me, I have Sulawesi And that's where these guys came from And these Sulawesi, <clears> they're flighty They're like, you, you're pulling out A 14, 15, 16 foot retic plus And that thing just moves Like it's swimming in the ocean and you're just mm-hmm. hanging on for dear life and tearing up your spinal cord. You know what I mean? That's flighty. And they're, and they're pissing and everything all the time they do it. They're just terrified. Uh, that's another locality that just needs a few more generations of captive bred. Um, and the, the superdwarfs, they're supposed to be long and lean. So they're just athletic. They move quick. They're not a ball python. It's, it's gotcha. not going to just sit there in your hand. It takes, they're the kind that take like 20 minutes of handling it before it stops moving. Right. You know, gotcha. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yep. Awesome. awesome. So um, I know you were like kind of almost hitting on it, but how would you set up, say uh, go from hatchlings, you know, all the way up to like adults, like what, what cages do you use? Whether what, what temps do you set them at? And uh, how do you go about feeding wise?
3: So uh, this is where it, Kind of gets tricky. And I, yeah. I I know a lot of people want like a care sheet with numbers on it. You know what I mean? So they can follow yeah, they exactly and have yeah. success. And you can do that if you're like, okay, this is my animal. It's 100% pure, whatever. It's going to be this, whatever. If if you if you Owen after this episode you're obviously going to be won over by me and come buy a Superdor <laughs> articulated Python from me immediately when you ask yeah. <laughs> yeah when you ask me for that and we determine that you're going to get a you know 50 Superdor marble you know or something like that I know that bloodline and I can tell you exact numbers and how to do that uh, the pure Superdors are different the the bigger dwarfy ones are are different still. So um, the problem is you're working kind of with, I I really think of them as sort of like hybrids, you know, where it's kind of an art, you know, like you keep carpet pythons one way, green trees another way. How Mm -hmm. do you keep a carpondro? Well, it kind of depends on the animal. What kind of percentage of each is it? You know what I mean? Like, is it more like a green trees, more like a carpet? So Mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of like this, but, I'm going to go for the just for the sake of, of going to the extreme. I mean, everyone knows a retake, you can just feed it every single day and it'll just get gigantic. And then they don't start getting fat until they're like three years old. They'll just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You know what I mean? Um, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Please, people don't feed your retic <laughs> every single day, giant meals. But some people do, you know. Yeah, um, but let's go to the other extreme. Let's say we're going to work with a pure locality superdwarf, like a Karampa, Kalatoa, Madu. Okay, um, these are animals that hatch out at like thirty grams, so they're they're literally they're like little pencils. Um, in the wild, they don't get to eat like ever, right? So mm-hmm. these are some of the, my kind of things that I think about. So I'm going to give you my rule of thumb for pure superdorfs on a feeding schedule. And just so you guys know, this is going to be controversial because really the okay. super dwarf market is still pretty progressive. It's sort of cutting edge, and it's always evolving. Even here in my collection, like with cages, my cages are very much evolving right now. So anything I tell you, I'm just going to tell you what I've had success with. Maybe some of the things I'd like to try in the future, but you're going to get people that, that disagree with me. Throw that out front. I'm, I'll, I'll do my best to help you understand this. Okay? Okay. Cool? All right. So yeah. here's what I do with my, with my baby super dwarfs. First of all, uh, I don't give them giant meals. Um, people like to give they, – they keep big ticks pretty hot on the warm end, and they give them giant meals. And they can digest it, they can put it down, but it's always a delicate balance. Like if that snake runs a little low on water or, um, or the temperatures are a little bit cooler at the bottom of your rack, you'll literally right. kill a snake doing that because you're maxing them out on what they can handle. Um, so the super dwarfs, what I do with babies, I'm going to give them a meal that most of them are like pinky mice when they first come out, they're, they're like baby carpet pythons. They're like the same size, Uh you know? So, uh, like think IJs or something. Um, you're going to give it a pinky mouse, maybe a fuzzy mouse or something like that. I like to get them going quickly. So I give them kind of more frequent meals, but you want to be able to just barely tell that the snake has eaten after you feed it. Like you can see a lump. You could definitely feel it. If you ran your, your, if it ran through your hands, you know, but the second day that lump should be gone. So that's the size I always feed throughout the life. It, the size of the prey item will grow with the snake. You guys were the ones that had the um the sausages, reptilinks. Yeah on your show one time, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, those guys. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. went and bought a bunch of Reptilinks after that for the Superdorf babies. Yeah, it was cool. They love the stinking they the love frog it. legs and it, oh yeah, well I mean they're super. They eat everything. they I can <laughs> I, I I can feed them a, a a drill bit. You know what I mean. Like <laughs> more, so. but but the are pretty cool. But anyways, um, you have to go way small on size for those though, man. They're they're dense. that's a lot of food in a little sausage. Yeah. So yeah. So anyway, you feed them something that the lump is gone the next day. With the from like zero to six months, I basically feed mine once a week. Okay. Now in the very beginning, Mm -hmm. I might give them to them like once every four days, but it's really just, it's not a food thing. It's that I'm trying to get them to experience eating better. You know, you want to get as many meals in as possible. Plus with a new clutch, it's just easier to go through the rack and offer everything food every four days. So the ones that aren't eating are getting regular offerings, you know? Um, Okay. So I'll, I'll do that for a little bit just to get them started. But for the first six months, once a week, pretty standard. Then, um, Um, six months old to to one year I'm going to feed them um, like once hold on a second let me back up here first six months once a week then I go feeding them once every ten days until they turn two years old so that's my like growth baby feeding schedule once every ten days until they're two years old And so I keep it real simple. When they turn two, they get once every two weeks. When they turn three, they get once every three weeks. After they breed, or in the case of a male, when they turn four, they get fed once a month. Okay. So I think that's probably pretty surprising for a lot of people, how little I feed them. But um, the reason why I do it is because... I have seen, like I used to continue just weekly feeding with everything, which is kind of like a, more of a maintenance feeding schedule for a mainland retic. You know, right. um, once a week is not a lot. But with my super doors feeding them even those smaller meals once a week, they actually will start to show signs of obesity even by like six, eight months, years old, uh, eight months old. Really? That's why, that that's why at about six months I start cutting them back because I'm like, you're starting to get fat. And that just doesn't happen with retics. They keep getting longer. But these things, genetically, they have a max. It can't get any longer. So any food you give them, if their skeletal structure not growing, it's just packing fat around their liver. You know? Right. And uh, it, in my personal experience, you'll hear it a lot. One of the one of the other misconceptions is that superdorf females are very hard to breed. Uh, it's because obese animals can't breed. And people... Don't realize what they should look like. It's like, go on Google, people, and Google what a retic looks like in the wild. They don't look the way that ours do in captivity. Most of the breeder superdwarf stuff that I see out there, um, yeah, especially if it's someone that has just like one superdwarf and a bunch of retics, or you know one or two superdwarfs and a bunch of ball pythons, uh, those females they have like a little tiny pinhead and this big fat body. You know what I mean? They're not supposed to look like that. They're supposed to look more like a scrub python. Long, lean, big, giant head. You know what I mean? Right. I keep saying you know what I mean. My wife told me before this interview. She's like, stop saying you know what I mean. I know it works. That's
2: that's why (laughs) – one of the reasons I don't listen to my own self is I'm pretty sure I repeat myself a ton of times. But (laughs) so now with the obese animals and the fat around the liver – you know how how short of a lifespan are we looking at here with an obese? Uh...
3: Well, the cool thing about well, the cool thing about uh, you know, the obesity will, will kill a lot of yeah. snakes pretty quickly. I mean, a lot of pythons and stuff. Obesity, you're you're talking about 10, 12 year lifespan, right? And, right. and they should be living up to like 30. You know, but um, but with super dwarfs, they're kind of self regulating. What they just do is they won't refuse food. They'll just keep getting obese but they won't do anything else either. They won't sit. breed. They won't, you know, they just sit there, you know what I mean? They just give up on life. They can become depressed. And so, you know, that's, that's why they do it. So I, am sure it does shorten their lifespan, but that being said, I, I see some, you know, animals that came in as wild caught adults, nice, long and lean. And then over the next 10 years became super obese and they're, they're still just there. Probably if you raise a captive bred baby, I've never done it, so I don't know. But if you raise a captive, well, actually, I take that back. Um, I have a I have a dead female superdwarf that I I cried when when this snake died. Right. Uh, I would have rather my dog died, but I keep her in the freezer as a reminder. Um, I got her pretty big. I bred her at three years old. She got egg bound and died. Oh, it sucks. So that's what happens with the obese ones. They just they can't they can't pass them. And that's the other thing you'll hear from super door breeders all the time. Oh, eggbound died. Eggbound died. Eggbound died. They got these big fat 3-year-olds that they're trying to breed and uh and you you don't even get to find out how long they live. <laughs> right. They die too fast, you know what I mean?
2: So. Yeah. So, uh what kind of I know you're talking about cages that you could like crawl in and, you know, be in yourself. What what kind of cages
3: and setups are we looking at for these guys? Yeah. Well, what I did with all of my retakes this year, I I went and got custom cages built and I added a little bit of height to them.
1: Mm -hmm. And,
3: um, what I ended up doing. So my first animals that I really enjoyed breeding and spent time learning about and stuff was, uh, monitor lizards.
2: Right. And
3: do you guys, you guys familiar with what a reek stack is?
2: Yes, I am. It's a
3: little, little stack of layers of wood. Uh, going yeah. up, and then you put them under a basking lamp, and super hot on the top, whatever. Well, a couple of years back, I built some cages. This is when I had a little bit more diverse collection, species-wise. And mm-hmm. I uh, I was going to get some uh, water monitors, and so I had these two by three foot cages for the hatchlings, and I gave them uh, they're two foot by three foot on the ground. They were like 18 inches tall, and I put a reed stack in there with uh, basking lamps on top. And then um, I, I ended up not getting the monitors, and I had the cages sitting there, so I used to use them as like a playground for the Superdwarfs.
1: Okay. And they
3: freaking loved it. They loved the basking lamps. They loved the reed stacks. They loved the height. And all of a sudden, the reason why they're athletic becomes apparent. They're just like cruising and exploring, and you like, I always test different perches and you know, seeing them perch, you know what I mean? is cool because usually they look like a a coil of plug on the bottom of a cage, the way a lot of people keep them myself included, you know? So with Mm. these new cages, what I did was I I built a shelf going all the way along the back Um, and I was getting some scrubs too. So I wanted to do this for them too. So my cages are actually like three feet deep and then they have an 18 inch shelf coming from the back to the front. Um, And then they have overhead heat and so they get a bunch of different temperature zones. All of my cages have dividers in them. So I have, like, uh, they're, they're actually six- or seven-foot cages that divide in half. And then I, I put adults in there. But they're, they're actually, like, gigantic for them now. And so they're kind of like playground cages for them. Um, I don't think they need to be kept that way necessarily. But I will tell you they really love the perching and the shelves and, and stuff like that. They use it a lot. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, you see a lot more behaviors with them. So um, I'm actually thinking about, with with my real small stuff, um, I'm thinking about trying out a Freedom Breeder cage. I think they're the FB90s. They're like a two-foot by three-foot footprint. And then I I, I don't know how tall their cages are, eight or nine inches tall. Um, And for me, eight or nine inches tall would actually be fine for the snakes. I just still like to put some uh, perches in there. I thought about maybe getting some of those like 3D printed perches that they use for the arboreals, you know, or something like that that's, that's maybe four or five inches tall and put it in those cages. But what I, what I do with my babies, they have uh, long tubs. They go back. Um, they're the V-18s. Okay. And yeah. uh, so they, I think they're like they're 22 inches, basically about, about two feet back. And then I think they're maybe seven inches wide and three and a half inches tall. And then I have these little hides that are like upside-down bowls, um, like dollar store, I don't know, paperclip bins or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
3: they're like two and a half inches tall. So there's like maybe an inch of clearance from the top of the the next shelf, the next level, and those little tubs. And they, they go inside them, and they love to sit up on top of them. And you know what's really cool? After watching, you guys see Dan Maleri's last episode on Kofi Owl Island? Uh, I did not. Oh, uh, that's terrible! Anything but an immediate yes. Oh well, you did.
2: Yeah, of course you did. I was muted. Sorry. I don't (laughs) want you muted yourself. Yeah.
3: So. (laughs) I don't want to hear people
1: have me typing and stuff. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry.
3: (laughs) Uh, what? The the fascinating thing to me in this episode, I'm interested to see if you pick up on the same thing. He had like viper boas and green trees and scrubs and all these different species. What what was right. every single snake doing at, that he found? Do you remember?
1: looked like they, w- they were in a position of trying to eat, if I remember. They were perched. Right?
3: Yeah, low, over well, the Oh yeah, they were perched. Right. Everything. Like, like we think of green tree pythons as like, oh, yeah, you probably have to climb up into the canopy to find out. Yeah, really, no, they're like was... 12 inches off the ground.
1: Yeah, there was one where it was like, it was almost like it was on a stick that fell on the ground. It was like leaning up yeah. against a rock or something. It wasn't even yeah. like really off the ground. I mean, it was, but and it then, wasn't like.
3: And then Viper Blood, you be. think are going to be like a, a Gaboon Viper or something, like hunkered down, or a Blood Python, like hunkered down under the leaves waiting for something to walk by. But they were perched six inches off the ground. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and didn't right? he find one, like, right by the ocean, which was odd? Like, you wouldn't – like, wasn't there one, like, in a – like, right off the rocks or something, just kind of
3: perched Basically there? Basically on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the so thing. so this is – you know, when I saw that episode, it was really funny. It finally clicked for me with what my superdwarfs are doing. You're talking about right by the ocean, six inches off the ground. These superdwarf islands, Karampa, Kalatoa, Madu – their, their highest elevation is like 60 feet. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's like tiny little flat reefs. Solaire on the other side goes all the way up to 6,000 feet. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Champaia right. has almost 2,000-foot elevation. Uh, these little islands, the highest elevation on, on any of the three islands is like 60 feet. It's just a little, which is what? One bush. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and there, there's just nothing there. It's like little rocks. They're, of course, they're by the beach. Because the island is two miles across. You know what I mean? It's all there
2: is. You can't there. get away from the beach. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Right. And so they're literally like perched on little mangrove roots waiting to eat. And my little superdors, I always thought it was funny with these little tubs that I got them that kind of make a shelf within the, the drawer, you know, within the tub. Um, whenever they are, have just eaten, and I said it, it takes like the lump is gone the next day, usually for about mm-hmm. two days they sit inside that hide. And digest and i put the hides in the back by the heat immediately after that they're up on top of that perch and they just sit there and wait so hmm, i think right. that's what they're doing i think they're like where's the next meal you know what right. i mean like as soon as they can so it's really cool when you my adults all do that too when they eat they go down to the underneath the shelves even though the shelves are like big enough that they can coil and hang there if they want but they go down right. below after they've eaten Uh, even though it's a little cooler down there because I have, you know, top like radiant heat. Um, Right. And then they go up and they perch when they want to hunt. And the feed responses are great. I mean, I mean, they're super dorses. Who am I kidding? Feed responses are always great. But
0: You know, they're
3: just so, I don't know. It's just so cool. It's like, hey, this is how you were meant to be, you know? Right. Uh, It's really neat to watch them like drink or whatever. They'll, they'll like hang on to the perch with their tail and the first two-thirds of their body, they'll come down and sit around the, the lip or the rim of their bowl, take a little drink, and then jump back up there. You know what I mean? Like, okay. like they're afraid to right. touch the ground, like they're playing lava <laughs> on the playground or something like that, you know? Right. It's just funny. It's really yeah, funny. We're,
1: who were we talking to, Owen? And they were talking about how retics are a lot more arboreal than people think. Who was that? It was like a couple weeks ago um, or something. But remember?
2: It, remember? Yeah, I do remember. I just don't know. I forget who. But yeah, there was like so, all the way up oh, until, Ryan. yeah, Ryan. all the way up until like they become, like four or five, they they're able to climb and should Ryan climb, who? especially if they're boys. So, Ryan Sullivan. Yeah.
3: Oh, okay. oh Ryan. Sullivan. Okay, yeah. yeah. No, that's. I think that's keen insight. And you know, the funny thing is, a lot of people that would probably disagree with that statement, but a lot of people <laughs> probably also have fat retics. Yes. Yeah, you true. know what I mean. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like like humans are active. And they're like, well, I'm not active. It's like, yeah, but you're 300 pounds. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. Nothing against it. <laughs> hey, if that's the lifestyle you choose, go to town. But, but it's, it's just not surprising to me. You know what I mean? When the, when the retics sure. look in captivity the way they do in the wild, you'll see them act the way they do in the wild. And so I wouldn't say they're as much like majorly arboreal, although I did get to see like retics hunting monkeys in trees, which is pretty cool. But That um, is cool. Yeah, but most of the retics that I've ever come across or whatever, they're kind of like in the the rocky side of the hill, like perched in between, you know, like limestone carved out areas where they're basically (laughs) however long they can strike, that's how far they are from the ground. So if it's a full-size mainland retic, they're like six feet off the ground. Little babies, like you said in that episode, sitting on a stick. Right. So, yeah, pretty cool. Um, So the other thing I do that's a little bit different is temperatures. And um, most people will say, okay, you need a hot spot of about 90 degrees for your refix mm-hmm. and then you want to have the cool side. Nah, that's People debate about that a little bit, but I'm going to say, you know, the the good way to do that with a mainland is like maybe 75 degrees, give or take a couple. Um, so you have a nice temperature, you know, gradient there and all that. I am beginning to believe that that temperature gradient is uh, more set up for maximum food processing okay you know what i mean they need 90 degrees is stinking hot you know what i mean it's it's really not ever 90 degrees in indonesia it's pretty constant temperature and then if you get on these little islands that have like crazy wind and you know what i mean that that rain coming down all the time i mean it's cold really cold Mm-hmm. You know, and one thing about is like, they never get respiratory infections. They, they're extremely cold tolerant. Um, the only thing they can't do when it's cold is digest a giant meal, you know. Um, but even then, I think they've evolved a way to get around that because the, the superdor stuff, they change colors, like chameleons. I mean, like, dramatically change colors. They'll fire up, people call it, where they're real light and bright. Uh, mm-hmm. after they've eaten the meal, or, you know, if they, if they need to get warm, they get super dark. Like a lot of times you'll see females sitting on their eggs. They, they just are like black, you know what I mean? Huh. It's so cool. They're just trying to suck up every degree and, and guard sure. those eggs. They also wind up a lot tighter than the main ones do for some reason, you know, probably just protect them from the elements. But so my temps, I keep a little bit uh, cooler and what I've, what okay. I've begun doing is running almost ambient. Um, so my, my room, I keep at around like 78, you know, which is maybe a a little higher than that on the cool side. And then I, I run heat tape. Uh, What I do now with with anything smaller, which sometimes is full grown breeding adults, you know what I mean? But anything that's living in a tub or whatever, I run back heat on them now and I insulate the sides of my racks and it just kind of gently radiates that heat forward. But uh I crank it up and the, the hot sides in their cage is like eighty five, eighty six. And then the the fronts of the cage will be like, you know, seventy eight. Something like okay. that. So
0: that's and, what I and do. And then for
3: sometimes Yeah. And then uh the only difference that is if if someone's getting fed more heavily, like breeding or whatever, um mm-hmm. I I'll actually put timers to, you know, change the timing with my uh temperatures and give them higher temps 12 hours a day. I give them the 90 degrees 12 hours a day, but that's like a food processing temperature,
4: you
3: right. know? And what that does is, you know, Eric, you mentioned them rubbing and destroying their faces and all this kind of stuff. Right. Anytime you keep a snake in a cage, it's way too hot. It's going to panic and pace and rub. And that's when they destroy their faces. So the super dwarfs eating as little as I've told you, I feed them. They're going to destroy their faces. If you have them at hot temperatures, they're going to dehydrate and, and quickly die. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, sure. So you keep them a little bit cooler and you feed them safe-sized meals. And I really haven't experienced that at all. I, I don't have any, even my babies, they don't, the only ones that rub are like the problematic ones that don't eat from the beginning, which is pretty rare right. in Superdwarfs. Right. You know, other than that, nothing so- rubs. So it's
1: similar to like um, – <clears throat> it's similar like we, we've been talking through a lot of different python breeders over the years. And it seems like the, the one constant is is that if you're going to feed bigger meals, you have to have that higher hotspot. If you're going to do more of an ambient type of approach, then you want to go with smaller meals. And yeah. it's probably better for the snake, I guess, it seems. Like,
3: it yeah. seems like the people that I, are
1: using the ambient cooler temperature type of deal, they have less issues from what I've seen, you know, less issues with, also, like, respiratory the, infections and stuff like that.
3: Yeah. You'll also notice that uh, those kind of people are not the people that are in a hurry to produce something. Correct. They mm-hmm. don't care if – the like, my females, like, four I, – I don't even try them. I, I think about trying them at four years old. By five, okay. if I haven't tried them yet, i put them in. So I, I give right. them a lot of time. And, mm-hmm. and then I don't have my babies getting egg-bound and breaking my heart. You know what I mean? Uh, sure. now, I do still like to give them some choice of temperature. A lot of right. people like, that are running ambience, the snake has no choice, and you're dictating this is what's perfect for you. And I can't quite right. bring myself to do that, but my, my gradient is a lot smaller. And like I said, with Safe Size Meals – uh, something that the the lump is going the reason why meals are dangerous just to back up. you give them a giant meal and they can 't process it fast enough. it rots in their stomach it it burns through the side of their uh, you know stomach cavity and intestine, and they get basically a, a massive ulcer and uh, if it 's bad enough, you know, you'll, you it 's happened to too many people. It's happened to me before. You feed too big a meal, five days later, the thing's gurged and dead. And it's like a rotten rat laying in the cage and a dead snake. And then people like to say, my rodent supplier gave me a bad rat. (laughs) You know (laughs) what I mean? And, you know, not that that's never happened or whatever, but it's too big a meal. You shouldn't have a lump three, four, or five days later. You shouldn't have that, you know? So certainly not with super dwarfs. Right. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's basically it. I like to give them, uh, the perching. I'm just, I have it in every enclosure I have, even for hatchlings and they love it. Mm-hmm. It's like a combination perch hide. Um, and then the, the big guys, they all get perches now. Big guys, you know, it's kind of a funny relative term. They're all micro. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, most all, used to. They're all not. But, yeah. 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 But even my ones that are in the giant three and a half foot cages, uh, you know, they get perches and stuff like that too. So. Um And that's basically it. little bit cooler temps just so that you're not stressing those babies out. I think if you had a, you know, super dwarf that's the size of a corn snake and you had it in an eight foot cage, sure. You could run 90 degree temperatures on the hot side because it can right, get right. well away from it. But when you're in a little right. tub and half of that tub is 90 degrees, you're going to kill it, you know?
4: Mm,
3: right. So, you either gotcha. have to feed it insanely or, or it'll die, you know, like, stress itself out. Metabolism's too fast. Right. Okay. Yep.
2: <clears throat> so, Owen, uh, any, can any I other cover special, your stuff, Owen? You did. Anything, any other special requirements you think you need to throw out there that for somebody who's trying to set up a baby or any kind of super dwarf or
3: dwarf? No, I mean, really, the the biggest thing is, like, just try to resist feeding them as much as they want to eat because they want to eat always. I mean, I think I could, in one feeding, feed a super dwarf until it exploded. I, they just don't stop. Um, mm-hmm. That's a lot hard for people because they think, hey, you know, I love you, so I'm giving you food because that's what you like, you know what I mean? And, and that's that's basically it. I mean, I really I really can't think of anything else other than basic stuff like please don't keep two males together. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. So Right. Um, but that's, that's not super only. That's lots of stuff. So, right. Yeah. All right.
1: Well, maybe we can talk a little about, a little bit about breeding, um, and your approach, mm. uh, to how you breed them. I would think, oh. maybe I'm wrong, but with these guys being, you know, from islands, um, and food being, you know, certain time, are they big into cycle feeding?
3: Um, yes, 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 yes. That's, it's all they are. I never change the temperatures of anything. I mean, now you guys know I live in Pittsburgh, so temperatures Mm -hmm. kind of change anyway. And even in a temperature control, like my, my reptile facility, I have like fully insulated walls and it's all, it's all heated, uh, separately than the rest of the house. But, um, uh, you know, you still get temperature change. You're definitely going to get like a draft if I'm opening the door and that kind of stuff. But, uh, but I don't think that that matters. Um, I also think that I, I think that a seasonal feeding approach works with these superdwarfs and I can't say for sure that that's what happens in the wild. I do know that there's like documented colonies of birds that nest once a year on Jampea. Uh, but I mean, at least from what I've heard, but I, you know, like I said, I've lived in Indonesia, but I've never been to these places before. So, uh, I don't really know what they look like other than whatever any of us can search on the internet. Um, but from my experience with them, kind of treating them, seeing what they like and everything, the number one issue I think that people have with breeding is that you can't food condition a female that's already fed too much. Right? Okay. So uh, people a lot of times are like, geez, you feed them once a month. No, matter, no wonder they're small. You're stunting them. These snakes are not stunted. They're still twice the size of stuff that you see coming in from the wild. The stuff that most wild snakes, when you, when you see them, pictures of them in the wild, or you find them in the wild, they're like flawless and beautiful and perfect. When superdors come in from the wild, they look like garbage, they look like you've dug it out of a truck fender. You know what I mean? They're <laughs> just haggard. And it just really makes me think those islands must be freaking tough. But, right. um, you know, they don't, they don't come in looking all wonderful. They just chewed all up and crappy and, you know. So um, the more you can neglect them, the better. I really think they probably are eating a few big meals a year, and those few big meals are probably like two days apart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Gotcha. And it's like 12 months of starvation. That's how I imagine it anyways. So my once-a-month feeding regimen is there's you know, probably more than enough. Now, they, that being said, a female that's going to breed, she's probably going to get 16 or 18 meals in a year.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and, again, like if we're talking about pure superdwarfs, a meal for these guys is like a large rat, maybe a jumbo. You know what I mean? So talk about, like, maintenance, cost, and time. It's, it's, they're wonderful to work with. But um, they never poop, you know what I mean? I never have to feed them. It's just great. But uh, so I'll, I'll feed them basically once a month. And sometimes when they're in blue, even though they would eat, I just say, nah, you don't get one. Because I'm going to be extra mean to you today and you'll make me babies later this year. And, uh, and it, it just seems to work. I, I kind of have that mentality as they go through. And then uh, what I do is, so let's say they're eating a large rat once a month all year long. Mm-hmm. And I want to breed them. I want to start conditioning them whenever, you know, like you can do it throughout the year, but uh, cause like I said, constant temperature is basically where they live. For me, it seems to be a little bit easier when it's a little cooler also, and they're getting those drafts. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's kind of like probably more natural, you know, so to what they're used to out there. So uh, most of my stuff I'm breeding like now, give or take a month, and uh what i'll do with those females is uh i'll go from a large rat to let's say the equivalent of like two colossals every feeding once every 10 days okay you know what i mean and i'll do it's it's lit- like like big meals and i bump the the hot end of the temperatures up and then i you know let little drafts in so the cool end gets a little bit cooler and uh it's like I'll feed them one big meal, and then after they've digested it for a day or two, I'll introduce a male, and usually she's wagging her tail and peeing, which means she doesn't want them in there, so I'll, I'll leave them in. If I'm working during the day, I'll do it during the day, or I'll, I'll overnight them, I'll pull them out the next day, and then another 10 days later, slam her with another big meal, throw that male in there, they lock up. Hmm. That's it. Okay. So, two, three big meals in succession, sometimes four, and then they breed. That's okay. it. But, but you have to like pretty seriously neglect them the rest of the year uh, because they, right. in my opinion, they need that massive change from this is like the time of plenty. This is when I should begin egg production.
0: Yeah. Right.
3: So okay. That's, it's very easy. But the, the biggest thing is, uh, to, to being successful is just keep your females slender, very slender, much more than you think you need to and uh, don't try to breed them at three years old. Wait till they're four to start trying and and don't expect them to go every year for you. And I've actually had more success and had higher production rates like annually in terms of number of eggs by doing that. And that okay. being said, I mean, it, you, you start to get into a little bit about how should I invest in superdorfs or how should I buy into them? You, you want to have a lot more females. I mean, remember if you're, if you're keeping a mainland retake and you have a 10 foot cage and you have a stack of them, that's, uh, you know, four cages high, you have four right, big right. females in there. Right. And you're like, see how much egg production I can, they all 80 egg clutches, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. and that's how many eggs you're getting that year. that's nice for you. And then you can sit on all those snakes because you made too many of the same thing and nobody's going to buy them all, you know, at the same time. And and I complain about it because I've done it, you know, and -hmm. then, uh, but if I take that rack out and I throw in, you know, these freedom breeder racks that are, you know, two foot by three foot, the footprints of the tubs, I can fit like 60 females in there. My production is going to be three times yours. And it's all stuff that people are like, all waiting list years out to get, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, <laughs> I, I haven't been able to overproduce super dwarfs yet. I haven't been able to, you know, some people might, but that's a marketing problem. That's a failure to connect with people that want them. Cause there's a lot of people that want them right now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So. <clears throat> um, I, does right. that answer Let's... your question? I mean, it's, I know it's kind of simple, but that's how I do it.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. Now, like, what are we talking uh, clutch size? Like, what's an average clutch size
3: for for these guys? Nice, lean, well-kept female. It's going to be a good breeder and live forever. You're looking at, I would say, 15, 18 eggs. Now, you can go a lot more than that, and you can go a lot less. I've had clutches that were like six eggs, you know, okay. and no slugs. And then I've right. had clutches that were like, mm, you know, 30s, low 30s, for, okay. for you know small lean pure super dwarfs. So again, if you're a retic guy, you're like, man, only 20 eggs, you know. But if you're a ball python guy, you're like, woo, 20 eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all a matter of perspective, I guess. But yeah, right. I, I would say 15 to 18 on the on the little super dwarfs. I'd be very happy with a clutch like that. So. Okay. Anything special as far as the eggs go? Um, Temp wise, what mm-hmm. do 40- you, kind of. Kind of. Uh, interestingly, they incubate faster than mainland eggs. Huh. So, mainland okay. retics, you're going to incubate for like 82 days or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Superdose seem to hatch around like 76. Now, that's Any incubated that at is? like, what's that? Any
2: idea why that is? Is it just because they're smaller? Well, this is,
3: no, this is what I'm thinking. because, I mean, it's, it's pretty consistent across the species. Even if you're going with an animal that's One's from Malaysia, one's from Sumatra. There are right. all these like 80, 82 days, you know, or whatever. And then these superdoors are like way faster. I think it's because we incubate them at the same temperatures, and I uh-huh. do not think those islands ex, uh, experience the same temperatures. So I think that they probably, superdoors probably should go 82 days.) Um, but, because one of the things, like, if you incubate eggs a little bit too hot, first of all, you're going to have a, a higher degree of fatality in the egg. But the other thing that you see is babies, like, springing out of the eggs before they've even fully absorbed their yolk. I don't know if you guys right. have ever experienced that with your stuff. I, I have, they're, yeah. It, it's like they're yep. trying to escape the eggs. They can't get out fast enough. And you're like, whoa, incubator's at 92. You know what I mean? Whoops. Yeah. You know? Um, and then you kill a couple. <laughs> so that's kind of how the superdors tend to be so i'm actually this year going to crank the temps down quite a bit and it's based on one clutch that i got in from a guy that i'm partnering with he incubated his superdors at 84 degrees which i'm like oh you're going to kill them that's way too cold and and he actually did kill a lot of them but um but the the ones that came out were like awesome and perfect and their their patterns look like imports five generations in so you know the other thing I, I in my experience when you have a lot of the superdorf localities they have a tendency to be striped out they have like cool dorsal patterns going down um, and you do see that in the wild too but I don't know if it's the same for carpets I have bred uh, carpets before but it's been a while and I don't know if I did any stripe projects back then but you get cleaner stripes at higher temperatures is that true for you guys um I don't know. I've never
1: tried that. I mean most of the stripes so stuff an that I've worked. With... For you. Yeah.
3: Well, so so use some stripes, you know, do 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 a stripe like a jag or something, mm-hmm. you know. Something stripey. And uh set aside a couple eggs in a separate incubator and you know, incubate half the clutch like as low as you dare to go and then half the clutch as high as you dare to go. The ones on the low end will have busier patterns. The ones on the high end will have striped, clean patterns. Huh. So it's kind of a generality. This is something that I've noticed, um, which is kind of interesting. It's just from having incubators with, like, varying temperatures in different places. But um, so one of the things I'm going to try to do is and, – and you know this, too. The higher you – when you, like, approach the top end of appropriate incubation temperatures, the eggs hatch faster. You know, they're cooler, they take longer. You see that especially in, like, lizards and stuff all the time. Yes. Yeah, so what I'm going to try to do is I'm hatching superdorf out extra fast, and I'm noticing a high degree of striped babies from non-striped adults. So what I want to try to do is take those incubation temperatures down a couple of degrees, let them grow a little bit longer, and see if I can bring back some of the more, like, wild-caught-looking patterns in my locality project. So, done. it'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll yeah. be interesting. So, cool. But, and just, just uh, for your guys' reference, like, you know, historically, yeah. like, I used to work at uh, prehistoric pets. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, uh, I was there for about four years, and I think I was there for almost every clutch that hatched from retics in those four years, and that's dwarfs, super dwarfs, mainlands. you know, they work with everything. Um, right. And, uh, you know, they're, you're talking about Let's say an average of, well, to make the numbers easy, let's say they do 100 clutches a year. That's kind of high, but then let's say their average clutch size is 30, which is kind of low. Um, right. Mm-hmm. So you're you're talking about what 3,000 annually? Yeah. Right. My yeah, numbers well, right? <laughs> 3, yeah. Three three thousand ish, something like that a year. And I worked there for four right. years. so you're like twelve thousand babies hatched. Like cut oh, 12,000 twelve thousand <laughs> pick eggs. So, right yeah so i've seen wow. a couple i would say so <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, i'm just trying to put like those people have done way more than that so you know what right. i mean but i'm just trying to put it in perspective like i've seen a few things hatch you can go back in time and the prehistoric pets youtube videos and watch me being a goober when i was younger you know
1: so, it was
3: fun <laughs> cool so yeah
1: Real quick about the babies. I mean, are they difficult
3: to get going? Um, nah, they're they're pretty easy. I mean, uh, you still have like the snakes that are like reluctant to eat sometimes for whatever reason. Uh, right. With the super dwarfs, super dwarfs really, really, really. I can't stress how much they love to eat. Have I said that yet? Um, yes.
0: <laughs> so uh,
3: they're almost never a problem, especially right. like, if if you have any. I I start them all on frozen thawed. I use whatever food source; it doesn't matter. They all start to eat. The one thing I've noticed is that if you go in at night and you creep in gently when they're young, and you heat that food item up real hot so they can see it on their heat pits, you'll have more success. Um, you know what I do with the ones that don't eat? Superdwarfs are, are very small. Um, I used to do; I used to play with a lot of like weird imported colubrids and stuff, especially like South African stuff, tiger snakes and stuff like that. And they never mm-hmm. eat. And so I used to uh, go outside in California and catch wild lizards and pop their tails off. It's like a renewable resource. You know, you let the lizard go, it grows a new tail, you pop it off again, you let them go again. Um, so the lizards around there, I had kind of reputation among the wild lizard populations in Southern California, but I'd, I'd rip <laughs> the lizard tails off and then I would stuff them down the throats of these little colubrids that would never eat on their own. And uh, they, they would learn to eat eventually where I would still have to kind of like pry the mouth open and put the tail in there and then they would gobble it down. So with Mm. that history, uh, I did the same thing with rattlesnakes for a long time too. I don't know. That worked for me great, but um, especially like sidewinders and stuff that sometimes don't want mammals. So what I did was I'll, I'll take my frozen rat out of the bag Mm -hmm. when I get them in and I go in with a pair of dykes and I cut all the tails off. This is morbid. Sorry, everybody that's trying to, eat dinner for some reason at 1047 Why are they night. listening
2: to us um, in eating dinner? Forget it. Keep going. That, that, yeah. that was your first so, mistake, people. So, so, so
3: yeah, so, yeah uh, whack all the tails off with a pair of dykes, and then those tails are, are great food sources for the babies. So what I do is I, I let them get hungry for a few weeks, and then if they're still not eating, usually it's because they're afraid of me, you know, because they're mm-hmm. baby snakes and they're afraid of everything. Um, but i I just grab them like I do, you know, kind of rough. I, I start with the wide end of that rat tail and I stick it down their throat and it, it pushes right down. And the, the hairs on the rat tail point backwards like little barbs. So they can't gurge it back out. So you right. stick the tail halfway down their throat and then they go, Ooh, and they, they try to throw it up and they go, Hey, wait, that's kind of nice. And then they swallow it down. Right. So gotcha. I, I go through and then, so if a clutch is say a month old, anything that doesn't eat on its own, if it's not in shed, it's getting a rat tail. Gotcha. So so I have no, I have no worries that, that method works great for me. Just like assist feeding. Um, And I don't sell them until they've eaten like everything I offer on their own, but you know, so. Gotcha. Yep.
1: So Owen's going to jump in next, but before we do that, I'm going to hit on, uh, I'm going to sort of combine these two questions. One's from, uh, um, I thought, uh, what was it? Marshall Platts and uh, Deedle Edmund. So, basically, you know, uh, they were looking, uh, we hit on the discussion of husbandry, localities, what are your thoughts on super dwarf percentages and their validity? And I think that Deedle kind of goes into that as well. The appeal of articulated pythons for a lot of people relies heavily on color mutations and patterns that turn off for a lot of people as their size this is where super dwarfs and dwarfs come into play. My question is what percentage do we no longer call these morphs with super dwarf blood lines? Uh, Example, I've seen uh, advertised super dwarf morphs that were 25% super dwarf but they're labeled super dwarf.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's actually a
3: really good question actually Um, because with the percentage thing, it's like Every, nobody really knows how it works, and basically what happened was back in the day, uh, you know, people got these imported tiny retics, and no one knew where they came from back then. Uh, in fact, the importers used to hide the secret locality that they were collecting from. You know what I mean? The problem was all the locals knew about them, so it wasn't, didn't stay In that long. But they didn't really know how it worked. So, uh, you know, basically uh, somebody bred these superdorsed albinos, and they made head albinos that still stayed small like, oh, that's cool. They grew up the heads, They bred them together. They made these tiny albinos. They're like, cool. And then they would, keep, they would breed those albinos to, let's say, they had an albino tiger next that they run it to. Now you're at 25% and stuff's starting to – but obviously it takes many years to figure that out. So back in, the, back in the day, a bunch of the people that were working with them decided, hey, industry standard unwritten rule is going to be to label something as a super dwarf it has to be 50% or higher. It's important okay. for people to understand there are no morphs that occur in superdwarfs with the exception of anathristic, the, the black and silver ones. You know what I mean? The, the greenish tins too. Um, so if I say I have a superdorf tiger, it's not pure superdorf. If I say I have a superdorf head albino, it's not a pure superdorf. Or how did the albino get there? There are no albinos on Kalatoa, you know, so uh, or any of the islands. So um, – Basically, uh, what it what that that was a good idea to make sure that it's at least half blood. You know, other I think other species do it better. You know, the dwarf Burmese, you yep. know how they call them. Uh, so they have these tiny little dwarf Burmese. They're actually a different subspecies. And when you mm-hmm. breed them to get the morphs, let's say you want an albino green that stays small, they call them half dwarfs. Gotcha. I, I love that. I think it's cool. You know what I mean? Like I say, I'm half Mexican. I'm not half Mexican. I'm like as white as it gets, but Mm -hmm. I'm all recessive. But, um, yeah, they they would call him a half dwarf, and I think that's a little bit more uh, descriptive, I think, for a lot of people. But we use percentages with the super dwarf thing, and the result of that is if 50% super dwarf is good, right, is enough to call it super dwarf and stay small, then 75% Superdorf must be better. So,
0: yeah.
3: <clears throat> I mean, it certainly means you took a 50% Superdorf and you bred it back into pure Superdorf bloodlines. Um, right. Now, I can, I can tell you for a fact that I have 50% Superdorf. Well, heck, I have 25% Superdorf animals uh, that are as small as my mainland's. I'm I'm sorry, my my pure Superdorf stuff, 25% Superdorf. And then I have 75%, like say Kalatoa is supposed to be one of the smaller localities that are like 14 feet long. So what's the problem? I also have clutches of, I have uh, first generation 50% Superdorf. So, you know, mainland blood to pure
4: Superdorf,
3: F1s. They're 50%ers and they're every bit as small as my pure superdorf babies. And then I have four generations in fifty percent superdorf like Het Snows and stuff that recently hatched out that are just even on hatching. These fifty percenters were like twenty five grams when they hatched. And then these uh, these other fifty percenters over here are like hundred and fifty grams. Oh only okay. had a big and they're they're the size literally the size of two year olds of these other fifty percenters. So what's going on? Um, and, and this is actually another misconception. People think it's unpredictable. You cannot predict the size. Well, I can sit here and predict for you right now that these 50 percenters that came from my marble superdorf clutch are going to stay small. And the 50 percenters from the golden child motley snows clutch, they're going to get bigger. I can Mm -hmm. predict it very easily, even though, uh, the percentages are similar, you know, So, um, or actually the golden job Motley is a a different clutch, but I have some 50 percenters that are from a hat snow clutch that are going to get bigger. Um, so here's my take on it It, in breeding other species. Like I've, I've bred horses and stuff for a long time. What they kind of tend to do is they choose males for color and genetics and they choose females for demeanor, body type, and size. So if you're going to selectively breed a domesticated animal, like a chicken, a horse, a dog, you know what I mean? That's kind of the way a lot of breeders work with it. And so the idea is when you put them together, the babies are going to come out and they're going to kind of tend to take after mom a little bit more in body size and temperament and, you know, the way that they are. And then they're going to take after dad a little bit more for like the patterns. So Hmm. if you do it right, you should be able to get there pretty quickly. So now let's imagine, let's let's think of the realistic scenario where nobody can breed a female superdwarf because they're hard to breed, right? But actually, okay. we all know now that they're just obese. So they breed superdwarf females, they raise them for five years, they finally breed them, they slug out and die, and they go, I hate these freaking superdwarfs, they're so stupid and frustrating. You know what I mean? At least I still have my male. Let me take my four-foot corn snake of a superdwarf male, and that's the size they are. I have... I have proven mm-hmm. breeders that are not over three feet, um, corn snakes. And I'm going to throw it on the back of an 18-foot uh, retic female, and guess what is awesome about that? They're all 50% super dwarf, and I got 80 of them. because The female laid 80 eggs.
1: Okay. You know oh, what I mean? Shit. All the
3: hatchlings come out at the same size as a mainland. And for some reason, they grow to be 16 feet long, maybe not fully 18 feet, but it, they're really funny. If you go look at a lot of like the the old school uh, breeders that people made back back when it was all starting, you get this animal that's like a sixteen foot animal with like beautiful classic superdorp pattern on it. And you're like, what the hell happened there? That's to me, it makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. Now, what's awesome is once you know that, and here the secret is out. So all of you guys are going to have to give me Patreon money because I just told a secret to you how to successfully <laughs> selectively breed those yeah, genetics Patreon you want money. down yeah, inside. Now. <laughs> yeah. Well I don't actually have one. I'm not that tech savvy, so my your listeners are gonna have to create me one and then pay uh, so, yeah two yeah, steps, yeah, but I that. think the information <laughs> is worth it. Okay. So yeah, the cool thing is you you it's easy enough to get a four or five gene male. You know what I mean? Uh you know what I mean, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and he's got all the genetics and the color and the pattern and everything that you like. And when I do this, I, I am very much a stickler for size. I really don't care about the morphs as much. I love my bloodline, even if they're crossed. I'm like, these are the coolest bloodline ever. You know what I mean? Cause the male mm-hmm. I imported from Germany and the female was this, and they always come out like this and whatever. But, um, so, if you get a small ish male with really nice genetics and you throw him to a pure superdorf female, you're going to get, sorry, 15 eggs if you're lucky and if the female goes. But the 15 snakes that come out of that are going to be every mutation and color in the rainbow at the size of almost a pure superdor. Wow. At 50%. So, the reason I have, I have a, uh, a female that's sunfire, double head snow, that's three genes in one snake. She's only 25% superdorf, but she's, she's breeding now. She's eight feet long. So, and and to put it in perspective, eight feet long is 5,000 grams. That's like a big ball python, you know, because these are long lean snakes. So, um, you know, the morph, the morph thing, it's always this uh, battle between higher percentage versus more morphs. You know what I mean? You got to breed back low percentage to get the morph in there and then you run it back to high percentage and, so, it is kind of true, like, the more you breed the super dwarf, the smaller they're going to get. But if you keep taking 18-foot females and putting them to four-foot males, you're just going to, you're going to keep getting – that's why I have these 75 percenters. They keep putting super dwarf males to more giant females, and the babies come out giant. Yeah. So, right. the other thing is Slayer, Kaowati, and Jampea, those are the dwarf, or some people would say Kaowati's super dwarf. Uh certainly Kawaiis are the smallest of the three. Um, those islands are a lot closer to the mainland Sulawesi and I think that they get a lot more fresh genetics flushed down their way. And so they definitely like they might be more consistent in size, but when you cross them, they have a propensity for getting pretty big pretty quick.
2: Really? So okay.
3: like if if I have something that's 50% slayer, it it might stay fairly small. But then there's other ones that from the, maybe the same clutch that are going to get pretty darn big. And it kind of just depends on how much of that Sulawesi blood is actually remembered in your animals that you're breeding with, I think. Whereas the, the Karampa, Kalatoa, Madu stuff, that stuff really restricts the size on these things, especially if you use females. But again, you have to stock up on females because you're going to get 10, 15, 18, maybe 20 eggs. And they're going to go every other year, starting at five years, so plan accordingly, you know right okay cool so all all that is to say i don't I don't care about the percentages as much. I record it all, and I know it most people i I probably know more about where their Superdors came from than they do, um just because I've been tracking it like a geek forever but um but yeah i I don't. I would much rather have a 50% super dwarf that gets eight feet than a 87 and percent super dwarf. That's still going to get 14 feet. To me, that's stupid. It has a high percentage, but it doesn't mean anything. The idea right. is to get cool, small snakes. So go to a reputable breeder, ask them what the smallest bloodlines are. Unfortunately, a lot of breeders give you canned answers. Oh yeah. The male's five, six feet, females seven, eight. And and really, their females are eleven feet or whatever. You know, they're just they don't actually measure them. That's the other problem. No one knows how to measure a snake. You know, <laughs> right? True. I'm here to tell you that an eight foot super dwarf retic is like you can you can almost you know make the AOK sign around their middle. They're not very big. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Got it. But when when they coil up, yeah, I mean, you can keep them in a, like a CB70 tub basically. You know, really an eight foot female. Yeah, it sounds crazy, but think if you if I said it, you could put an eight foot scrub in a CB70, wow. you'd be like, Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah,
2: yeah right. You yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah, I get you. Good point. So,
3: it's the way it's um, supposed to be. So, can you
2: kind of hit on a little bit like uh, what, what are your take and thoughts of the retick market, whether it be the dwarf, super dwarf, and the mainland? Like, you know, how's that doing now? Was there a big impact from the ban? And now everybody's kind of like, Oh, we're. Free to get my stuff and rush into retics again, or uh, what's going on yeah. with that?
3: Well, the uh, as far as mainland retic breeding goes, it can be pretty frustrating because especially if you're working with rarer stuff. Because when you make a clutch and you get sixty of one baby or whatever, mm. you've immediately flooded your own market. So sure. you're you're you have this dilemma of like, what do I do with all these babies? Even if those were like you know ten thousand dollar animals or something, it's not. 60 people that, and even if you love big retics, you can only have so many. Mm -hmm. I would happily have 200 female superdwarfs. Can you imagine the nightmare that would be 218 foot pythons? Because I actually can. I've seen that before. That's a lot of work. That's a 25 person (laughs) staff. 200 superdwarfs I can do by myself in a day a week. You know what I mean? It's like, so, um, so anyway, that that retick market is is uh it's turbulent you know, and stuff goes it comes and goes and round and round and all that kind of stuff. Um the impact that the ban had is well, twofold. Number one, there's less availability of the different locality stuff to work with. Right. Um so you, you don't have like an influx of things coming in, but number uh-huh. two, just like Eric said earlier, localities are being lost you know what i mean there's like 10 pure ones left in the country and they're all at different breeders and nobody wants to give theirs up right you know what i mean so i'm here on the air to say everybody send me your awesome pure locality super dwarfs i'll make it happen for you (laughs) (laughs) but uh but but no on on a serious note the overnight the locality stuff went up it just skyrocketed. Um, right. you know, I was, I was used to buying pure superdor females, like say uh, Kalatoa females or something, uh, for maybe 400 bucks a piece, um, uh, mm-hmm. just five years, five years ago, or, you know, basically just pre-ban. And, um, last year I sold out at $1,500 each. I couldn't keep them in stock. And I actually don't like that. I would like the, price the prices to be low because my whole intention is to let more people check out the species. You know mm, what I mean? Right. So, like, in December, I have a clutch coming that I'm going to forcibly make the price lower. Um, they are – I only have 12 eggs, but they are Kalatoa-Madu crosses. And those two okay. localities are, are like a, a skip a stone from one island to the next, basically, but they are distinct localities. Um, but they're pure Superdorf 100%, but they're a mutt of the two localities. So I'm going to be selling those babies quite a bit cheaper for people that do want to get pure Superdorf blood for selective breeding process projects. Um, They're very, very tiny snakes. Um, and they'll be great for other people to like put genetics in that, that I'm not working with currently. You know, you want to make an albino anthrax or something. I can't help you. You got to start from scratch. Right. Right. So, oh. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, immediately that, that stuff exploded. And and then the, you know, the other thing is just marketing in general. Um, the analogy is always like the guy who wanted to be the chiropractor, went to medical mm-hmm. school, likes working with his hands and helping people be healthy, decides, gets out of school, decides to open his own office, and then all he does is pay insurance and taxes. Right. You know what I mean? You have to hire other chiropractors to crack people's backs. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't get to do that anymore. That's what right. a lot of reptile breeders do. They're kind of like, hey, I'm alternative lifestyle, and I hate people, so I love reptiles that hate me. So I'm going to get a bunch of them and then open a retail business so I can deal with people all day long.
2: Like, <laughs> <laughs> what just happen? Wait, wait! you went <laughs> sideways there. That was yeah. yeah. You were doing well.
3: Yeah. Mm, like. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, but you're breeding these snakes, you're producing cool stuff. You have to turn that so that you can reinvest those profits into food and caging and, and new genetics. Right. So that's the dilemma. What do you do? And that's kind of what I've done with a lot of my projects. I, if I have a female and someone else has a male, I'll be like, hey, man, I trust you. Take care of my female. Please don't kill her. If I'm really worried about her, I'll just insure her or something, even though that doesn't save the bloodline. But right. um, send her out on breeder loan. You know, and then I, I say, like, I'm kind of the sales and marketing guy. How about instead of the traditional thing where I keep half the babies, you keep half the babies, and then we both try to sell the same animals and beat each other up on price,
0: mm.
3: which is why people hate doing projects like that. They like to monopolize so that they can control price. How about if we just do a 50-50 split of the cash when they sell,
1: and mm. you send me all
3: the babies minus whatever you want to hold back and not sell, and whatever they sell for, I'm going to cut you a check. So I I do a lot of that kind of stuff, partnerships and things. It really lets me flex my muscles as far as getting good, pure locality stuff from people that I respect and know all across the country that have animals that I could never have or I have animals that they could never have. We're able to work together, and if they're the alternative style that like the animals and hate people, then they can do that, and I'll just build more baby racks, and they can just send me babies, and I'll just send them paychecks. And they can right. clean all the crap they want to do all day long. And I like working with people. I don't know why. I, I like answering <laughs> the same questions over and over. Right. As you've noticed in the last two hours, I have no problem talking on the phone for a very long time. Right. So I enjoy it.
1: Well, you kind of – I'm going to jump in here a minute because I want to make sure we get okay. on this question. Um but we got a we got a question in from Forrest Forrest Vanning and um, he talks about uh, you know about what advice you can give us little guys about marketing and brand development in my opinion Garrett is one of those guys who is taking things to the next level with packaging trade show displays social media which I kind of had you know, was impressed by all of that, so I already had that kind of in there. But um, I'm just curious on what what advice you would give uh, people. Um,
3: Wait, did Forrest Fanning just refer to himself as us little guys?
2: I believe so, yes. which was my <laughs> first
3: my first <laughs> problem with had this move, question. So yeah, the yeah. guy that had to move to Indianapolis so that he could ship everywhere from a main hub in the United States. Yeah. I'm not buying this. The little guy. So, <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Little guy. I, I think he wants another giant blood python from me or something. These it, it or it something, <laughs> yeah. That was it's a like big a blood
1: python, by the way. Holy shit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't like all my snakes small. I'm I'm down with the big snakes too. I mean, I just I honestly I love everything. I love everything. Right. But Superdors, for me are the most pleasurable to work with, especially when it comes to the market. Because there's right. so much more demand than there is supply. So right. as far as selling, that that's a big question, actually. Um, and I, I'll just touch on it quickly. But as far as selling snakes go, uh, and you guys have to realize, I come from like a marketing and business development background. Right. Um, the number one, and, and a lot of snake people just don't. They, they're just, I love you guys, you're not good at business. You know what I mean? Not you guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody. Mm -hmm. I know what you mean. Uh, And so, what everybody does is they hatch a bunch of stuff out, they put it in a spreadsheet because they they think they're cool because they used Excel, and uh, they price everything, and then they slap it up on a bunch of reptile classifieds on Facebook or online or whatever. And if they don't sell, they blame Facebook or they blame whatever, you know. Um, When you do that, and people can sit there and just browse through your whole price list and everything that you've got. Uh, it makes them feel comfortable in the availability of the animals. You know, if, does that make any sense? And so, yeah. what you do, Eric, if you put out all of your breedings, all you you hatch three clutches and you put everything out, and then mm-hmm. Owen, you do the same thing, and some of your animals are crossovers. And then I do mm. the same thing over here. And every breeder is out there doing the same thing. Potential customers are sitting there after tax season with money burning a hole in their pocket thinking, hmm, which one do I go to? You ever go to, like, the the frozen yogurt store? And you're like, crap, I don't know what to get. There's 700 right. flavors now. And then you end up <laughs> mixing up a bunch of stuff that tastes terrible anyways. You're like, what did I do? Like, I should have right. just got the strawberry, you know. So that's what happens. You you get that kind of like, oh, I don't want to make the wrong decision, and there's so much available in front of me. Really, Mm -hmm. there's not that much available. People are just posting the same ads 50 times over because that's all they know how to do, you know what I mean? And they they price it right there. You know, Eric, if you're selling – I mean, give me an example of a hot-ticket item that you're going to sell this year and the price. I mean, just one.
1: Uh, hot mm. ticket item. I don't know. Uh, granite Super Zebras. Uh, Ooh, I don't even know what the price go. would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, two grand. Give them the price, price and, damn it. <laughs> okay, two grand, right? Yeah.
3: Right. Granite, right. granite Super zebra. two grand. Now, Garrett Hartle over here happens to produce one, and you have 20 of those, right? Mm-hmm. It might seem like a lot, but it's really not, because you have a huge following, and you can move some carpet pythons. You always, mm-hmm. at any mm-hmm. given time, have, 300 people that would want those and are trying to think right. about how to get them one of your 20. Now Garrett right. Hartle over here, you've established that market. You're the, the granite super zebra guy, but then Garrett Hartle, the bozo with all the super dwarfs, you know what I mean? Is given a, uh, you know, a, a zebra, het granite female that lays and I miraculously hit the odds, you know what I mean? From my rescue granite uh, female, Het granite female, and I get a granite super zebra, one of them. I go online right. and I say, well, Eric's got them up for two grand. I'll make mine 1500 Oh, you bastard. Can <laughs> okay. I make it? I, well, I mean, that's not that much, 25%. Oh no. Shoot, everybody was doing that this week, right? That is true. <laughs> Black <laughs> right? Friday. Yeah. yeah, if you exactly. didn't give me 25% off, I'm not getting out of bed. So, right. 1500 bucks. Granite Super Zebra. Plaster it everywhere. Now the whole world thinks that granite super zebras are only worth 1500 bucks, Right. And you can't sell them anymore. That guy sells his in a half an hour. And then, Eric, you're, you're sitting on 20 of them, getting nothing but phone calls for six months saying, well, I saw over here they're only worth 1500 Right. Sure. So, so you do 1500 Freaking Garrett does it again for 1000 the next year. Right, even though that's a project that's not it's double homozygous. I guess, it's not easy to make. Right. You know what I mean? But I make a one and it's crashing market, and it's because we, let's be honest, these these items are made up prices. You know why sure. My Calatoas my went for fifteen hundred dollars last year. It's because I had six of them for myself, and I was like, these are the best. I sold the rest at 950, which I thought was people are going to hate me because those are too expensive. But I have so many people on my waiting list. I got to let some go. And, and then I, I sold them out, and I had my six, and people were crying and begging me. And I was like, well, I guess I'll sold you a whole for 1500 And they're like, great, I'll take three. And I'm like, oh, shit, you know, three. I've <laughs> so only got three left, but that's $4,500. I guess I got to yeah. do it. Next guy right. goes, dude, I heard you got the pure Kalitoos from that one female. I got to have some. He got 3. Give me 3. I'll give you 5 grand. I'm like, "Duh." And now I have no babies from this year. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. So, so that's how the market is going with this stuff, you know. Um on the other hand, somebody else thinks they have a pure Calico because they bought one that someone said was that on eBay. Right. And they don't know how to sell the crap, and they've got it up for 500 bucks or whatever, you know what I mean? And someone talks them down to 350 and they sell it and then they think my stuff's too expensive. My reply is, that's fine. My waiting list goes out two years, so you can say it's expensive if you want. But hmm. let me ask you this. How many of my ads have you guys seen lately with prices and pictures? And... Uh, none I don't that think I can recall. No. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen. I, I, I have posted one classified ad with a price and a picture this year. Yeah. One. One. On a singular animal, it was a Burmese python that someone gave me, and I was like, I don't know, here, Burmese classifieds, here you go. You know what I mean? They're like, that was way too cheap. I can't believe you sold that. And it got snapped don't up care. in three minutes. It's gone, yeah. Well, it just wasn't my market. Like, I, I yeah. just didn't know. I'm not trying to hurt anybody, and in that market, right. you're not going to hurt anybody. Because nah. there's a huge shortage of Burmese pythons right now. Right. So, uh, you know, it just went. But I have not posted any of these. And uh, every day I get multiple requests for price lists and I have to tell them, guys, I never even get to the point of making a price list because I will say, listen, guys, I'm breeding my, uh, my motley tiger double head snow to my golden chop head snow. You know what I mean? And a lot of genetic possibilities. Anyone interested in any of that, let me know and uh, I'll get you on the waiting list. And you're going to get like right. one or two snakes of every morph. I was hoping to produce just a simple male golden child for somebody. And I don't right. have one. I got three, three females in the clutch, no males. So, hmm. sorry. But, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll roll you over. I have one more shot at it this year, and you'll be top of that list. Hmm. Right?
0: Right. Uh,
3: so I just tell them I don't work off availability list. I work off a of price list. Now, do I have anim- animals available right now? Absolutely, I do. Do I want to just write everything down that there is and put prices on them and slather them everywhere like there's a million? No, because I'm, you know, I'm going to be sold out tomorrow anyways. You know, I, I don't have, you right. saw that huge booth I built. I didn't have any yeah. snakes there. I think I, I was able to bring 20 snakes and like half of them were holdbacks. I was like, please God, don't somebody buy this. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> so just there's a availability. But, but here's the difference. I, I show off, I update, I try to take cool pictures, but the way I do it, all I do is educate the public about what I specialize in. That's it. The information right. I give you, it's free and it's for you. And I hope you have success with it truly and honestly goes back to right. the thing I read in the business it's authenticity in giving. And that's what I do. And then people call me and they're like, I love what you're all about. This is what I'm looking for. Take your time. When it's ready, I'll buy it. So what I do is when when a snake lays eggs, I I call the people in the waiting list. I say, you got 74 days. Get the money together. And then I call them again when the eggs hatch, and I go, here's yours. This is what it costs. You, I don't collect any money. It's free to get on a waiting list. You'll be right. the first right. one notified. It's first come, first come, serve. I don't care if you're right. the president. You know what I mean? You're going at the bottom. Right. Um, and then when that when that waiting list comes up, I collect the money in full and then I get the animal feeding. I make sure everything's perfect and all that kind of stuff. And then I send it out in my nice little box and you're super happy with it. But you've been waiting for six months for a specific animal. You paid me cash in full. You slammed it on the table and said, thank you. And then when the box comes, you guys have seen the posts. I'm sure not my classified, but of my customers posting like, you know, box openings and stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. They're, like, so happy. Whenever someone's like, hey, are there any Superdors available? Eight people jump on and say, get rid because they're, like, (laughs) dying to get their Superdor from the clutch that's due in March. You know what I mean? Or whatever. So that's how I do marketing. I just help people. That's it. And then I don't put out price lists. I don't publicize it. You know what I mean? It's not like it's a secret. Call me, I'll tell you.
0: Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I
3: don't don't put prices on – tubs. I don't put my stuff on classified ads. I, I go to educational groups and I educate people there. And, and then people PM me and they say, I saw that snake in that video. Is that one for sale? How do I get one like that? I say, I'll put you on a price list or yeah, that one happens to be available. So you have to communicate me, with me. And that's what I like anyways. I like connecting with people. You know what I mean? Gotcha. I, I, just like everybody, I don't like the random PM. Sup, bro? You know what, what I mean? you got I Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for right?
2: snake. All right, which one? What kind? Boy or girl? Anyone, don't matter. Thank you for wasting my time. And on and on time. it. Goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: I whenever I get those things and I actually I do like dealing with people and I am happy to deal with that person too, but I just say, "Hi, what's your name? My name's Garrett. I breed superdwarfs. you know what i I mean and and they're like uh well and then they tell me their life story and we go from there (laughs) right but but i actually i actually taught that person how to be a customer with that transaction otherwise i could have said listen you little piece of crap you know what i mean (laughs) you don't just go and and then they say f you you bloop bloop yeah well right screenshot it and they screenshot it and they put it all and then there's there's a thread yeah uh, Why? I, you know, I don't want it. I'd rather teach them how to be a good customer, and then when they do, they love me and they buy more things in the future. True. So. so, so that's um, it. And that, with the other stuff, all I do is I think about what do I want to uh, come across the people as, and then what do I think of? This is I do business development for people. I I still do it for reptile people. I help them with their marketing, logo and branding design. Uh, just how to portray themselves to the, par- the public, how to bring their product to market. You know what I mean? I, I kind of walk them through, show them options. You breed a, a batch of snakes, you don't have to go through the pain of selling all those. You can wholesale them to someone and take a paycheck. You know what I mean? You right. can team up with someone who's breeding a lot of stuff and do it on consignment. You know what I mean? There's There's a lot of options for you. So... You know, I I try try to walk them through and figure out what's best for them. But for me, you look at my logo, it's got Pittsburgh in it. We're a bunch of rednecks and coal miners. And, I mean, we're on the other side of the mountains from you guys. We're the original Wild Wild West, you know, Daniel Boone and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what I do. my, My garage is built to look like a mine, my reptile room. It's all blacked out, long and low, you know what I mean, dim lighting, all my cages are like per- purposely DIY industrial looking stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what my booth looked like. That's what my boxes look like. That's what everything looks like. Um, and the reason why is because that's how I identify. And you can get a taste of my personality even if you've never talked to me before, just by taking home one of my business cards. Nice. You know what I mean? So you just have to think about who you are and how to communicate that to people, and that's your branding. You know, I, I do different things. There's no magic formula to this. I talk right. with Brian Cusco about this stuff all the time. He does YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, but, I mean, he's like a YouTuber. He wants to professionally do YouTube, and he's really good at it. Yeah. But I, I yeah. work with him on, okay, you do YouTube. That's great. And he's like sitting around waiting to be rich, you know, like the people who make $10,000 a month on YouTube. And I'm like, well, what are your streams of income? Where's your cash flow coming from? You know what I mean? How are you converting people? How are you, you know? So there's a lot of questions to just kind of run through with that stuff. Um, But I would basically say, my motto in life, I don't do anything because it's what my parents did. I don't do anything because it's what you did. I think, you know, gosh, if I'm going to wait six months and pay $1,500 on a pure locality Superdorf retic, I, I want nice packaging. That's two iPhones. You know what I right. mean? <laughs> Look at the packaging an iPhone comes in. What's your problem? You, you got to say, well, why would you package that? box cost $10. You, you gave them a free T-shirt? You got to sell those. You know what I mean? It's like, no, dude, a guy bought two iPhones from me. I'm going to give him a T-shirt and ask him what size his wife is so she can wear one too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If I know the dude's had a baby, I'm sending him a onesie with the little reach out reptiles thing. You know, whatever. I mean, whatever I can do. I I try to write a note to everybody. And what I try to do is um, develop an appreciation for the animal they just received in that note. You know what I mean? I love this animal. Uh, She was the smallest one in the clutch, but she came back with with a vengeance. Or, you know, this particular animal always glows when I open the tub. I'm not big enough that I don't notice those things. So I write down what I notice, and then I maybe say what I think is cool about them and how I hope them. I, I hope this animal is able to help them achieve whatever goal it is that they bought it for. Right. You know, and in doing so that animal, the second they open it has sentimental value to it and they no longer care what the price was. You know what I mean? That animal We think buying stuff, especially as Americans, makes us happy, and it doesn't. Experience, life experience makes you happy, and that can be had through buying stuff. but It's not the only way, but it is one way, and I just want to Mm -hmm. give people a a richer life experience, you know what I mean? So I I go to Indonesia, I learn about all this stuff, I speak the language, I come home, and I, I try to bring them the coolest of what I know from there. I let mm-hmm. them have that experience, too. It's like you're you're with me on the journey. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it. And and none of us have arrived. We don't know what's up. We're all t- figuring this whole life thing out anyways. We don't even know what temperatures to keep our super doors at.
0: You know, come
2: on. <laughs> so. Well, until so
3: you figure it out. I mean, you know, it's all good. Uh, yeah. Well, and then I figure it out, and you figure it out differently, and we both have success, and that's okay.
2: That's you know? the whole point. Right. So Garrett, we at have least some, we're both
3: listening to our animals.
2: That is the point. So now we do have some closing questions for you. Um, these are the ones that are kind of a little bit lighter and uh, may not even be about superdwarfs. So,
3: <laughs> all right.
2: W- let's see. Um, <clears throat> what will your next reptile purchase be?
0: Oh,
3: well, there's a morph in retics called a phantom. And it makes okay. a blue-eyed leucistic. And a buddy of mine, Andrew, is uh, sitting on some clutches from some really cool pure Superdor females that he's got. One of them's wild caught, so I love getting a, a new, fresh bloodline. And okay. he's making some seventy-five percenters. So he bred a Phantom male to a Superdor female, and then that's the seventy-five percenter I want. Two generations back to his smallest, coolest Superdor females. Okay. Um, I want to buy those because I would like to put two of them together and get super microscopic, solid white retics with bright blue eyes.
2: That's kind of cool. I I like that idea. All right. That sounds like a good one. Um, So, now if you could work with any species of reptile on the planet without limitations, whether it be by law or cash or size, what would it be and why?
3: So the things that make me tick are the stuff that most people are afraid of or don't understand. I love venomous <laughs> and big okay. stuff. You saw the Brian Cusco video with me jumping out of the jaw of the saltwater crocodile? Yes. <laughs> that was awesome. I would do that my whole life.
2: <laughs> so you just uh, get a salty?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I'll like a pit of salties. Or maybe okay. muggers. I like I like muggers. Yeah. Uh, actually, my favorite crocodilian is probably a black caiman or an American crocodile. I love those. Ooh, um, I would yeah. say Komodos, but I actually, I've been to Komodo Island maybe a dozen times, and I just love being there. I don't, okay. that, for, for whatever reason, that species, to me, is not something that I feel the need to take home with me. I love it's them Stay there,
2: yeah.
3: I love them there. So maybe just move to Komodo? That would be cool. <laughs> that that would be Yeah.
2: Oh, I'll allow it. Yeah,
3: that's fine. Okay. So I would move to Komodo. Yeah. <laughs>
2: All right. So now, um, if you could travel anywhere on the planet without limitations, where would you want to go? And if you went herping, what would you be hoping to find?
3: So the two like herping meccas that I'm still missing is the uh, the Amazon and right. South Africa. Okay. Amazon and South Africa, so the Amazon shoot everything I mean even just I would be happy to see like Parapiima, you know what i mean um, every, i everything I love all the little pit vipers, probably the the coup de gras for me would be like a uh a blackhead bushmaster yeah, you know if i if I went down to South America, um okay. I don't even know if those actually live in the Amazon, but you know somewhere down there they
2: are down there, and yeah. then
3: um. <laughs> And then uh, South Africa, um, I love like the big Cape monitors. You know, again, crocodiles and Nile crocodiles, all the cool yeah. cobras that they have. You know, yeah. I would just, I would just go and fondle everything that tries to kill me <laughs> in both of those places. <laughs> lots and lots of, yeah. Brian Cusco always jokes around that my, my slogan should be reach out and touch something. 'Cause I'm like, ooh
1: <laughs> Cobra. I just
3: I just gotta you. know what it feels like on the back of your hood. So I'm gonna pet you before you turn around and bite me, you know, like, like right. I don't know. Stupid, irresponsible, it's how I experience life.
2: That's all awesome. <laughs> That's a good slogan too. But um <laughs> so, so a well, lot stupid, irresponsible
3: it's how I experience life, or reach out and touch somebody?
2: all of it. It should just be all in the back of your business card. Just that's it right there. So, um, but why don't you throw out, uh, well, what's a good way for somebody to get in contact with you if they want to, you know, chew the fat on super dwarfs, If they want to get one of your tiny little micro retics. Uh, you know, uh, how would they get in touch with you? Uh,
3: you can email me. It's uh, well, probably the easy one to spell is info at com. I'm the only one here. So it's coming to me. You could also email Garrett at Reach but no one can ever figure out how to spell that. Um, <laughs> Facebook. Just yeah, go ahead and follow me on Facebook, friend me. Uh if you're, you're a right. real person, I'll I'll accept your friend request until I have too many. So uh friend me on Facebook and uh and then comment on something and be like, Garrett, what's your cell phone number? I'm gonna call you and talk to you for two hours about Superdwarfs, and I'll give it to you. Um, <laughs> Right. Oh shoot, my phone number is 412-925-1933 Hit me up awesome. I'm not asleep anyways I have a uh, 7 day old kid So I won't be asleep for about 6 months So let me know Jesus. Cool
1: <clears throat> Well, uh, it's been awesome man uh, We're probably going to cut off at any second But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on And uh, whenever you're ready for a round 2 man I'm sure there's stuff we missed and more we can hit on. So there's nothing.
3: You now know everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, up. we're
1: totally totally in now. Uh, yeah, uh,
3: yeah. Learned everything. Everybody, everybody likes me the first time they meet me because I'm an open book and I tell them all my great stories. The second time they meet me, they're like, "You already said that, dude. Do you forget who I am?"
2: Like. You're a loser. <laughs>
3: We've, been, so, we've,
2: we've built six years of repeating ourselves on a podcast, so it's okay. Yeah. So
3: yeah. I, I don't know how you stuff. do it. Still say, uh, still say relevant. I don't know, but I like it. <laughs> I like it. We don't. Either. Yeah, I really anyway. appreciate you guys having me on. I uh, I really respect what you do. I know Eric. When I came up, I was kind of you know jagging you a little bit up at Tinley. Uh, back hmm. in October, where I was like, "Hey, yeah, your podcast, I like it. Can I give you some criticism <laughs> yeah
1: man I, I, but, uh, I no man, I'm always <laughs> open to that
3: yeah, no, <laughs> how I, do you I get hope you guys realize. yeah, no, <laughs> I know I, you guys have one of the most legitimate podcasts out there, and uh, I love your guests. I love the way that the way that you guys you know bring stuff out of them. Owen, I really appreciate your sense of humor and all of it, and Thank uh, you. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I can't thank you guys enough. Seriously, you guys do a great job.
1: Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. All, so, right. all right, man. Well, you'll have to, you have to come back out, come out
2: here and check out the Hamburg Show, and uh, let me know when you're coming down. I'll show you around the uh, uh, the Venomous Isle, and you can go get in trouble down there. Okay.
4: Hoo hoo hoo.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know what? Honestly, it sounds like I need to come to Carpet Fest. That sounds like yeah, a pretty big too. deal.
2: Yeah, so yeah sure I never know
3: that. Mm-hmm, yep. I can't go out and find this information cuz I'm a goober. So I need uh-huh. one of you guys to like just send me the stuff. Hit you over I the head with it. All right. I'll, I will. I'll take run. care of if, that. If you guys <laughs> if you guys invite me and you get me like set up or whatever, needs to happen or whatever, I'll I'll be there. I would love to oh. to do that.
1: Awesome. I will get. Awesome. You, I will personally invite you. You will get a personal <laughs> invite from me.
3: I believe it when I see it. I'll believe yeah. it when I believe right. it. Yeah. All right. Awesome. All
1: right, man. Thanks well, so much. You guys, take yeah, care. You have a good Easy night. All right. You too. See you. Bye. Awesome. So, are you ready to get some super dwarf sewing? Uh, have you been? Uh, are you ready to cross over to the uh, to the dark side or what? <laughs> Are you there? I'm right here. Owen. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I asked you a question and just silence. Oh no, I excuse, excuse me. me. I hear a key typing. Type <laughs> something. No, something happened. I couldn't.
2: I could not. Like it was a little flash in the pan. I couldn't hear for a second.
1: I don't know what was uh, going on with
2: my headset. But well, I, I can't. Our, I
1: can't bust your balls too much because I couldn't get things together at the beginning of the show. So. No, you couldn't. <laughs> you can't read and like talk.
2: Yeah. Not like you've been doing uh, this
1: for. God, six no, years 18
2: years yeah. i don't know right. anyway um you're gonna run out and buy some more retics <laughs> are you
1: no i mean for me my my thing is more locality i don't really I, I mean the more morphs are cool and all but uh when it comes to the dwarfs the and the super dwarfs uh, I, i'm definitely I, will be in garrett's ear about uh say, you know getting some all over locality this, stuff so. I mean, yeah I these would are, but these you are know
2: like smaller locality retics. I figured you'd be like oh my god I need to clear out these bins get out of here carpet pythons so yeah I mean nah, like you know that's
1: no nah, well I mean I I do really really dig them and uh you know yeah. and it it and an opportunity did come up but at the time I was I had just blown a wad on Papuan pythons and Moluccan pythons <laughs> so I couldn't I couldn't hit Garrett up on that but um I, I will, you know, for You're sure. You'll wait and you'll
2: watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got
1: you. But, but you I know, I, I, figure... want, I want a specific thing. Like, to me, you know how mm-hmm. I am. I've said this before a million times. But, like, yeah, I, 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 I I really think that, like, preserving those locality types is important. I, I really so do.
2: And, like, great, pure locality. No morph involved at all. 100% yeah. super dwarf.
1: Dude, you can't get any better than just a straight retick. I mean, all these morphs and stuff are cool, and what? I don't know. Maybe I'm getting old, man, and I'm just like, you know, <laughs> maybe I don't know. I don't know. I just hey, it, hey. It, when it comes to carpets, you know me, I like the whole thing. But when it comes to like when you have to Everything pick and else. choose, yeah. you know, and you can only have so much of that stuff, uh, I don't really care about the morphs, to be honest with you. Well,
2: so. you know, when you start yelling at people at Carpet Fest to get off your lawn and, like, you know, get a haircut <laughs> done, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you. But until until then. Listen, you I little bastards. You, I think you're.
1: What <laughs> the hell are you doing here? Oh, back in he my day, candy cost a The, second, pickle. the, the, the
2: <laughs> second, <laughs> second those words come out of your mouth, I'm uh, I'm just gonna knock you out and drag you back into your snake room. So you know when all just,
0: of a sudden, <laughs> when
2: all of a
1: sudden Jim starts agreeing with me, you know when Jim, Eric has I'm a out. good point. I'm out. I'm, <laughs> out. I'm out. I'm out. I quit. I resigned from NPR. Done. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not quite yeah. there yet, but. Thank God. I don't know, man. Well, it just—you know what I think it is? I think it's mm. the bullshit that comes along with the morphs that I don't. Of course, because like. and I and we, we had that discussion because I told you I'm like
2: I'm more excited to breed like white lips and and water pythons because why? Because they all look the damn same. Because then it's like you want a white lip, two hundred bucks. <laughs> you want an olive? Yeah. olive? two hundred bucks. It's not like the can I see every single one so I can pick out the one I want. They all look the damn same. You want a boy or a girl? It's it. So it's. Like I would like that because it would give me less to do, or it's easier. That that part,
1: yeah, that part don't even bother me. It's more of the drama that comes along that is associated when you're breeding morphs and like, you know, slashing prices and this guy's screwing me over, and that's not really what
2: you told me it was going to be, and blah blah blah. Yeah,
1: it's just I don't. Like I said, man, maybe I'm getting old. I don't know,
2: but. It oh, is What the it hell's is. wrong with me, then? I mean, Jesus. So. Um,
1: yeah. Man. You're, anyway. <laughs> you're, you're like an old man, too, Owen. I'm <laughs> older than you at this point now. I mean, I don't <laughs> the, much, the amount I complain,
2: I'm further down the road than you are.
1: You know God. what's crazy is, like, uh, when it comes to, you know, I'm going through my collection the other day, and I'm looking at the different things and whatnot, and, you know, I'm looking at females, are they ready about You know the one I'm most excited about, to be honest with you? Those M Pens, man. The M Pen Coastals. Like, I've been
2: chomping at the bit for you to breed those things since you got them. So, you know, I think
1: you, me, and maybe. Michael Pennell. uh, (laughs) Yeah, he might be interested in A. Dave Perlis, you, and that's about
2: it, man. Yeah. Nobody else is
1: going to give a shit.
2: And you know what? You yeah. know what? Between us, we can split the clutch. Sure, <laughs> you can
1: have yeah. time with that. <laughs> I'm fine with it.
2: I don't care. Forget yeah. those people. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. This is just gorgeous animals, man. And, you know, yeah. I don't know. So, but that's where we're at. Um, cool. Next week. So, we got three shows left. <gasps> Next week is Scott Zimmerman, a.k.a. Scott I... And we're going to be talking about jungle carpets, uh, nice. it back to some carpet Python talk before we close out the year. We're going to talk about, uh, keeping jungles, some of his pairings, maybe give some advice on buying a jungle. Um, I know Scott's pretty good with building his own racks and cages and that kind of stuff. So we're going to good. talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so it should be cool. Um, like I said, he goes by Scott Cheney, uh, on, um, on Facebook. So, uh, right. you can check out his awesome jungle. He's got some really nice jungles, So, um, if you're into that, uh, it should be cool. Then the episode awesome. after that, uh, you won't be I'm there, gone? right? Yeah. You're I'm gone. Not, no.
0: You're going uh,
1: your Tuesday movie date night. Um, Damn right. awesome. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> We're gonna be talking IJs, so I'm trying to line up an oh, IJ round table. Right. So <laughs> I know exactly why I did it that way.
2: I'd I um, just be sleeping. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, you'd be like, "Come on,
2: guys, really? Come on, it's a brown guys. snake." <laughs> but, but this one has Rusty blushing. I'm like, "Oh God!" Yeah, all right. Yeah, good episode for me. So uh, yeah.
1: yeah, yep. So yeah, and then, it'll be uh, after that one. The, uh, uh, it's the the holiday show and that will just be me and you and uh that'll be nobody it so no. yeah nobody nobody, nobody, nobody know <laughs> and then we are off for a couple weeks and uh yeah. coming back with a vengeance uh I'm already working on lining up um uh, you know guests for 2018 and uh Sweet. you know I I don't know I like the direction we're going I think uh mixing it up and and doing uh, different stuff and whatnot is is fun for me. I don't, I'm assuming mm-hmm. it's fun for you, unless we're talking. Well, I'm ideas. still here, ain't I? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> I got a walk years ago.
2: Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. But that's that. So um, our website, moraypythonradio.com. You can find all the info there. Uh, our, our email is info at moraypythonradio.com. Um, as far as myself, uh, ebmuralia.com, and my email is eric at ebmuralia.com. That's all I got. Cool. Uh, well, guys, you can go to
2: rogue-reptiles.com, check out all the stuff we got going on there. Uh, also, you can look up Rogue Reptiles on Facebook.com. We're going to kind of be shifting the Facebook around a little bit. It will no longer have animals for sale, but it will have links to the website, so you can go check that out there and uh, just to avoid any kind of craziness. Um, this Saturday I will be <laughs> mooching off of our good friend Matt Minitola and I will be setting up one display on his cable. Um, and, uh, he's letting me bum off him until I can get my table resecured back for the, uh, February Hamburg show. So, uh, we hope to see everybody there and, uh, that's it. So, uh, we'll catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night.